What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. But every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens invading. Fluoride in the water, they spray our skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? The uncanny valley is far behind us as a consortium of technocrats and tech bros coerce us into a digitally augmented cocoon, where our mesmerizing metamorphosis leaves us transcending reality and delving into the metaverse. Today, we open our minds discussing conspiracy theory and alternative philosophy through comic book art and how all that may be in jeopardy with the advent of AI artwork with AI enthusiast and comic book publisher Thomas of Paranoid American, who joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And enjoy this episode with Paranoid American. Imagine if you're Marvel and you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages. I could just feed that to an algorithm, say, here's the black and white version. Now here's the color version, because I've got both. Now that you know that what the difference is between the black and white and the color, I'm just going to feed you a bunch of black and white pages. And now you tell me what the color versions of those would look like. And once that looks good enough... I mean, the colorists are out the doors in that regard. Right. And then it goes for the inkers. Now it's like, okay, here's the pencil and here's the ink version. Now make me the inks without me having to hire an inker. The the final step is when you just say, here's a high-level concept. Write it for me, pencil it for me, ink it for me, color it for me. You know, uh, do all of that. And, I mean, that's... We're not talking science fiction anymore. We're talking, I guarantee you, someone at Marvel or DC is trying to figure out how to do that right now because, you know, how much cheaper and quicker would it be if you don't have to wait? Even a professional artist, you might get 
three pages a day or something, but they're going to burn themselves out. A lot of, of pro artists, they try to limit themselves to a few different titles per, you know, per year that they're working on with AI, man, you know, the AI can do like a hundred books in a day. We're just going to roll right into this episode. So I'll, I'll when we get a break, I'll introduce you and whatnot. But I, this is interesting. I want to keep recording. When I was born, 94, that was like post-comic crash, right? 93, there was like this comic crash I read about, and everything kind of went under, you know, Chris kind of filled me in at the beginning of comics. It was all sort of fraudulent to begin with. It was some sort of money laundering thing that Mafia was doing in Pulp Fiction. You know, they were sort of, not the movie, but the the industry of Pulp Fiction, you know, press. You know, they were printing all this stuff just to sort of clean the catalog and, you know, wash their money away. Right. So it was seedy too, because a lot of the content that they were producing was like on the line legally, you know, it kind of pushed moral morality laws and sort of just like common decency, which brought on the, the comic authority, which is where you had the comics that had like the little stamp of approval. And if they didn't have the stamp, it was technically like a banned comic that you weren't supposed to be able to, to sell or anything. Now, and, so, and that's the kind of stuff that you seem to be more into. Was that a viable, like, could you find those kind of comics growing up? Like, after the comics code, obviously you weren't around before the comics code. But, like, when you were getting into comics as a kid, were there, like, off-brand kind of comics that you could pick up at certain in certain places? Or how did you yeah, kind of come into contact well, with so, this? So my, my dad had his own comic collection. And ironically, you... you started talking about what was his name Mar the martian dude martian manhunter yeah martian manhunter and the first comic that i grabbed from my dad was i think it was the cameo of martian manhunter which is an interesting you know sort of just like sync right there but i remember he also had a whole stack of like adult comics that were kept in a box <laughs> in like the back of a closet that i eventually found you know at some point right and it was like zap comics which had a lot of crumb there was a lot of just like nudity and drug use and it was very counterculture and this this is such an interesting topic to me because it was those comics those underground comics that kind of carried the whole comic industry forward in the format and it wasn't marvel and dc you know detective comics that came from those pulps and there was a lot of military comics too like a lot of original marvel comics was like marines and infantry right. and like all these like frontline stuff but outside of all that, the ones that didn't care about the comic authority and that were pushing the boundaries, they would get sold out of like head shops and out of the place you'd go and get, you know, your your little like cocaine accessories or your bongs or just like all that weird counterculture stuff. And that's where all these alt and underground comics were really coming out of and keeping the whole industry going. 
outside of that, it was it was almost like that comic authority and all the rules and regulations made it so you had to just make like you were kind of mentioned like a pulp style comic or maybe everyone had to just be like a spandex wearing hero that could fly and like shoot lasers. It kind of put everything into these categories where, you know, I have to make something that I can legally publish and that will have a market to it. And therefore it's almost like the industries defined these very specific categories of comics I can come out with. Whereas, you know, these underground guys were like, let's make a comic about Jesus being a pimp and just like smoking meth. And they would just make that comic. And it, it definitely didn't get that same kind of broad appeal that say like a Batman or a Superman comic would, but it found a very hardcore following and also represented like an entire chain of stories and a whole entire concept that existed outside of that approved industry. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So what we're seeing is this sort of maybe first iteration, at least in American culture, of a split between like the underground and the mainstream, right? I mean, this is something I interacted with, with rap music. I think people are familiar with the concept through music. Yeah. Through music, it's a good analogy because you don't have you know, if you have instruments and whatnot and you can record yourself, you don't need a big corporation to fund it, right? If you're maybe very talented, but you don't have any of the money and all this other stuff, well, then you need the corporation to fund you. And guess what? They're going to tell you what you can and can't sing or rap about. And I think that's kind of what we saw with comic books is like, if you were going to get out on the main shelves and, you know, print and mass production you had to be approved by this comics code and uh, you know we kind of, i asked you about the crash but when did when did they sort of loosen that up because like everybody's familiar if you've even read a comic book once or twice you're for, you you can kind of see the difference how styles the art has has you know grown right originally it was very you know what do we call it pop art dot art right this sort of yeah, the, the halftone patterns based right. on the printing process they use. And that sometimes that's what differentiates like golden age and silver age and modern age. Right, right, uh, right. It's the size of the paper, it's the quality of the paper, and it's the printing process. Now, and I was going to say, you bring up a really good point here because it was the color comics that were the ones that would be really hard to break into without having connections. Mm. It was the color comics it would get that spinner in the grocery store or the spinner at the drugstore. So when your mom or your parents went to go and pick something up from like a normal place, that's where you get the traction. Your mom, your mom and pops probably not going to bring you to go and grab like a bong or a pack of rolling papers. They might, if they were like super cool in like the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, oh man. That's why a lot of these underground comics ended up being black and white too, because then all of a sudden it's like, if I can draw and write and find a copy machine or just find a cheap printer, now I can publish a comic book too, and I don't have to have these huge resources. Right. I mean, it's essentially what Juan has been doing with his Occultist Monday. Uh, I kind of picked up my own style with that, with the scene edition, and I might have to put some black and white copies of that together. I, I do. It's just a pain in the ass to get the ink for this HP back here i don't know maybe that's a different kind looking into it at this point it's probably even cheaper to just have an actual printer 
make them up, especially if it's in black and white. Even after you add up the cost of like the ink and the paper and the staples, all that, mm. it's like a wash to just get a, a legit printer to do it. Because now with digital printing, it's so damn cheap. It's it's really hard to try and beat that even at home doing your own stuff. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I went to Staples. I was trying to go to Staples, and I remember I tried to print out like 50 copies of something, and they're like, oh, sir, you're going to overrun our computer. You, We can't do that many copies at once. And I'm like, fuck this. I'm just going to buy your cheapest printer and do it myself. And I did that, and now I have a, a piece of junk on my table that I need to go buy ink for. <laughs> so <laughs> I understand the, the, the struggle trying to put things to print. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. When did the... When did the comic code kind of loosen up? Because, you know, now I can pick up a copy of like Daredevil and there's like, you know, katanas being slashed across people's chests and blood flying everywhere. And, you know, it's clearly it's changed. Of, well, that was kind of like almost like the prohibition era of comics. So it came mm. and went. And I think by like the 50s or so, it was kind of on its way out or at least changed into a different form. That initial downfall of the comic industry and the rise of underground comics that was mostly from like the early 70s to maybe the very early 80s and then outside that in my opinion it was the underground comics and the head shops and all of like the weird counterculture stuff that kept the comic medium afloat between the 70s and 80s and then once it made it through that really tumultuous decade then all of a sudden you had like a new kind of resurgence I mean, and it depends on who you talk to. So when you say you grew up in like the 94 or so era, that's where, you know, the hardcore new X-Men, the new mutants were coming out. I mean, X-Men went back for a while, but I'm talking about like the the modern Cyclops, Wolverine, X-Force kind of crossover. That was a lot of early 90s. Also, that gets associated with Rob Liefeld, who did. He's known for doing like all the pouches and the pockets and everyone's got gear, like, all sorts of yeah, like just gear strapped to them, little fanny packs and stuff. Yeah. And you can see there was like certain series. Oh, like, that's a style X-Men. throughout the X-Men. Like you just get hit with it. Everybody's like geared out. And then, you know, the first iterations are all like, you know, skin tight spandex. And then they all look like Cable and Bishop with like gear at some point. When he brought that over to Image, too, and for a while, it was like everyone was doing that with their comic book characters. They mm. all had to have little pouches and, and gear kind of strapped to them. And in some people's minds, that was also another beginning of like a second downfall because they the comics were also trying to get... Uh, very gimmicky they had i personally loved this aspect of it which is i definitely don't fit into the same categories a lot of comic collectors but i remember in the early 90s you get x-men or spider-man comics and want to have like a hologram like glued to the front of the cover and you'd want to collect all of them and then they also came out with foil covers where it would like you know reflect in the, the sunlight and stuff and it wasn't necessarily the greatest cover stock it's kind of like this plasticky sort of feel to it and there was a whole number of other ones. The other one, the big one was like the Superman. Uh, yeah. Well, so that one's a holographic cover, not necessarily a, ah, a different. straight foil cover. Okay. That's, in my opinion, that's a nicer one. That's on cardstock, and they have like a separate print process where they add that foil to it. But they have some that it's, if you open up the inside of the book, it's literally just foil on the inside. It's like a piece of plastic. Ah. And all of these different, I guess, gimmicky things also sort of pointed to another I guess, like fluctuation in the comic world where they weren't necessarily focusing on 
amazing stories and amazing artwork and pushing the boundary. Right. It was just like, oh, that's got a hologram on it or that's got a fancy cover that shines. Let me go and buy that. Right. And I think that one you can point to is maybe not like falling of the comic industry, but it was just like a diversion of focus where, mm. you know, what are we doing, guys? Are we writing stories? Are we coming up with cool mythology or are we just like putting cool colors on plastic and foil and trying to make that the product. Well, I think that that happens to any like collector's market too. Like when something becomes valuable as a collector's item, they go and they try to gimmick that. So like, you know, I guess that would be geared towards people who didn't read the comics and just left them in the package on a shelf. You know, oh, I got all the cool foil covers and now I have a cool display in my my room that's rare and, you know, costs a lot of money to collect. That's one thing that pisses me off sometimes is I'll get into a good story and then I'll see like, read next issue, you know, and I got to buy find the part four, or the part five or the part six. Now I'm on this journey to find them all. Luckily, a lot of them have been digitized. You can get them through like certain like Marvel Unlimited or whatever, but even they're missing issues. I'm like, what the? I gotta buy issue 160 to issue 250 just to keep keep up. You know, it's it definitely the whole collector's thing really takes some of the fun out of it as a reader because now I'm like, you know, I'm not gonna pay fifty dollars just to keep reading this when all the other issues are three dollars you know like there's just one really cool one now that has a cool cover that's 50 to 60 dollars when all the other issues next to it are two three dollars right so i don't know maybe i'm just a newbie i'm complaining about things that other people have solutions to but i find this fascinating yeah yeah and i I think we're lucky today because you've got the digital aspect of that if this were 94 you might not be looking at 50 to a hundred dollars depending on the exact comic you're looking for but it was you know it was more or less a a game of hitting up the right shops and maybe bringing in some comics you didn't want to trade and, mm. and vice versa and that's how you built that up but now today you know 2023 if you can't get it digitally at the very least you can buy the trades and and the trade is where they'll take like a normal comic book you'd get from the comic shop, you'd call that a floppy. Those are typically 20 pages or so. It's usually got like 80, po- 80 pound print interior pages and maybe 60 pound, but it's like, it's a floppy comic. Cause if you were to hold it in your hand and flop it around, you know, it would bend around with the wind, but the trades are usually where they'll take six issues or eight issues or sometimes four issues and combine those into a single book mm. that you can go and grab on Amazon and those are so damn convenient because it's like instead of having to spend 10 on every issue and then, you know, treat them like they're golden and wear gloves and put them in plastic, you can grab the trade and then leave all your floppies in storage or whatever, mm. um, which it's it's kind of a sad aspect of it, too, though, because now of like this classic Spider-Man and Venom and X-Men and all the ones that maybe you grew up with and loved chances are all the nice copies are like graded away in CGC sealed plastic and they don't get to see sunlight and it really <laughs> does become a commodity. Like no one's ever going to look inside these books again. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty much going to be all digital at some point. That Well, and that's the thing that is really like interesting about this is because it's uh, the stories. Some of them are so fascinating and I have examples that I wanted to bring up because as conspiracy theorists, you know, these writers, these artists, these illustrators, they're clearly thinking along the same lines as us. And I would venture to say, like, you know, a lot of those guys that maybe started in the underground making like edgy comics about whatever they want, 
potentially graduated up to a higher paying job within Marvel, within DC, and then brought that edge with them as much as they could. And maybe you see that kind of changing the landscape a bit, but I, you know, I'm shocked sometimes to see comics that uh, maybe they're silver age or modern, some of the stuff in them, like I'm like, whoa, this is edgy. I don't know how I would react to this when I was a kid. You know, like I said in this Martian Manhunter edition one, which this was like a modern uh, issue, it came out in the '90s. But the the villain that Martian Manhunter is like watching or whatever, he just kills a baby in the first two pages of this issue, and I'm like how is this marketed to 14 and up like killing a baby like that's brutal stuff man and i mean that it's honestly nothing and that's that's <laughs> where comic books are really cool because despite that comic book authority that that came and went sort of that prohibition there of comic books at that point pg-13 movies have come out and sort of all of like the the puritanical mothers that would go and rate movies and make sure that their kids weren't seeing something horrible. No one cared about comics as much. Right. So okay. I see open up a comic and there'd be drugs and sex and violence. And I'm, I'm bringing to mind one, I think from the early two thousands, I might be misquoting this. I think it was from a Punisher comic, but there's a guy that stra- goes into like an orphanage and just straps babies to his entire body and and like gets into a shootout with the police and it's like they're not that's his armor me. yeah oh god in order to get to me and like that's the something that i don't think you'd see in a movie people say that all the time oh this would never be made into a movie i really don't think oh uh, god at least be a very hard to pitch that one to the board to be yeah like, the protagonist is going to just strap toddlers to his body and the police are going to have to like shoot through the toddlers. <laughs> well, and you know, I think there is an argument to be made that this stuff, you know, as grotesque as it sounds to some people who aren't familiar with it, like that this is an outlet for what, you know, otherwise would just exist in someone's mind, right? Even though I'm not sitting here imagining all the ways a villain could, you know, pull off a heist, you know, I've used every other trope. So now I'm going to this, you know, last resort where the villain has to go into an orphanage and strap babies to him or like where tropes come from. They got to start somewhere. Right, right. It's in this area. Well, and that's, that's what I mean. Like inevitably you run out of ideas and you got to go to something that's even more depraved. And I think Punisher is kind of, you know, out of all the Marvel comics is kind of known for it being like one of the more brutal ones It's you know, he's constantly constantly shooting you know it's not like captain america where the guy never touches a gun like punisher's first you know instinct is pull the trigger and ask questions later you know in a lot of cases so how how dark does it get i mean obviously marvel and dc are probably like on the upper sort of you know they all have their own i mean so dc had vertigo which was their imprint that did the more edgier stuff where you got Preacher and and a whole bunch of other ones that would get into like the gore and the sex and the violence. Marvel recently had something called Marvel Max, uh, which is like truly adult. Like you know they they call it like X rated or whatever. It's Marvel M A X X. But I mean, even before all of those adult specific imprints came out, for example, on DC they had Lobo, and Lobo is my favorite DC comic of all time by far. Like it's not even close. And he comes from a planet where he killed everyone else on his planet. And he goes and he just, there's one issue where he goes to heaven and he just starts plowing, like shooting down angels and ripping off their wings because 
that's what he knows is to just like kill things and be this this weird sort of catalyst in every story he's in. And I always loved that aspect because no one had ever really knew about Lobo because he was so far outside of the normal DC pantheon of these, you know, like gods with spandex and a lot of them being very infallible at times. Mm, Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that, you know, again, is a little shocking to me as someone who remembers this stuff from my childhood. I remember coming across like X-Men comics that I probably were like, yeah, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. You know, I was just very naive when I was a kid. So like that guns cool though. And that guy's shooting lasers. Yeah. Like guns and lasers are great. I understood that, but like there were some little subtleties that are sort of coming to mind now, like sex and, and drug use that I didn't quite register when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the nineties at, to your point, nobody gave a shit about comic books. So to, to me, like being like eight or nine years old and, asking my grandpa or grandma like hey could you buy me this comic book they're like oh yeah sure those are great you know who are you reading about superman or batman i'm like no i'm reading about gambit he's a former thief who's you know freaking reformed himself and he's now helping out the mutants you know and there's this this crazy love triangle between you know right Gambit and Rogue, and then there's like Jean Grey and Wolverine and Cyclops, and there's like all this sexual tension. None of that. Getting in the fights. Yeah, none of that. I never registered any of that as a kid, and I'm seeing that all now as a, a, you know, a young man. I'm like, oh, okay, this is pretty interesting. Like, this is kind of maybe informed how I saw social, you know, dynamics as a, a young person, right? This was kind of informing my social sort of intelligence at a young age, reading these more, I don't know, they were they were on the border of CD, like they were a little racy, I would say. X-Men, it never got into anything that was like perverted, you know, like the Lobos, that sounds just like graphic violence. I was never attracted to that kind of thing, but I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, to hear more about like how dark and how depraved it gets, not because I'm going to go and buy those comics, but I just think like there's a certain egregore here that people are tapping into. And, and yeah, it's just, it's curious to see these countercultures, you know, how they, we we can start with like an old one that to today's standards, you'd look at it and think it's the most tame thing in the world. But in the new black Adam movie, there's a character named Sabak. And Sabak stand, it's a, an amalgamation of a bunch of demon names. It's like Satan and Adonai and Zobub or Belial um, and all these, like, just to say the guy's name, when he said Sabak, he would just recite these different demon names and it would basically invoke all these demons and turn into this, like, supervillain that had the powers of all these demons. Well, at the time, that was pretty, you know, edgy and sort of like over the line because people were already very much puritanical from that standpoint. I think this is the 70s, maybe it might be late 60s, early 70s. So this is like a direct incantation of, you know, summoning demons. And this is a DC book, I believe. So, so that wasn't necessarily like dark or evil in the same way that you know lobo going to heaven and and like ripping off angel wings and shooting them with machine guns and stuff but i i would say in comparison for like what was going on in the 90s when you know the 
Terminator and Die Hard and like all of these hardcore bloody violent movies were going on, Lobo just fit sort of into that pocket. Whereas when Sabak came out, it was kind of an, an unknown thing. I think that was a Marvel. That was a Marvel comic. It was a Marvel Junior, whatever the, the like the kid's name was. Hmm. So, I, so it's it's weird. It's on a sliding scale that just the fact that you're talking about actual demons and incantations, right. and then it slides all the way to like actual violence. But between the two different time periods, it it almost feels tame. But it wasn't at the time. Well, and, and we see this continuation of this sort of culture through comic books, and it made its way into the more mainstream in movies in the early 2000s, late 90s. You know, you see movies starting to reflect these themes more and more now to the point where you have movies like, you know, what's the one with Keanu Reeves where he's just shooting, shooting, shooting something? This, no, the name is John Wick. Yeah, John Wick. Thank you. It's like a yeah, self-titled film, right? So John Wick, main character, he's just shooting everything, right? And that's what people go to see. They're like, whoa, it's so cool. It's basically the, the one part of the Matrix that they spent a lot of time on, like converted into this modern, you know, I don't know. What's the guy who goes after his missing kids? I'm terrible with references today. Liam Neeson. <laughs> it's basically like Liam Neeson and the Matrix combined, right? So and it's I, revenge porn essentially. Right. Well and, and I think there's like this this continuation going on there. Sabak actually when you said that name, the first thing that came to mind was Sabak the rapper who gets into a lot of this <laughs> kind of right, stuff. Yeah. You're familiar with him, right? With like Necro and nonfiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a good rapper too. Definitely one of the, you know, unsung kind of underground rappers. But, but yeah, I definitely think that there's this subculture of fantasy, sci-fi, and I'm I'm curious, you know, as a conspiracy theorist yourself, like we have the mutants, we have the sol super soldier serum, we have, you know, gamma radiation affecting the Hulk and, and the Fantastic Four. Like there's all, all throughout most of and I'm not so familiar with DC. I know their powers are a little different, but it seems like with Marvel, the theme is that an ordinary man is altered by something new, scientific, something that's kind of new to humanity, right? There are a few characters that do like the occult thing. They, you know, Doctor Strange and all that, you know, or, you know, but what's the guy? Iron Fist. Who's the, the Kung Fu guy? Is it Iron Fist? I don't remember if it's mm -hmm. Iron Fist or not, but... You know, there's, there's not all of them fit this theme, but it does feel there's, like uh, there's government experimentation, like Wolverine right. from the government, right? The Mega Red, right? So did a whole number of saber tooth essentially was like a government, but it's operation. ultimately like transhumanism. I mean, do you, do you see it with that? I mean, as a kid, I never would have thought of it that way, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, they were giving us transhumanism. Like I identified with these superheroes. I thought, oh, maybe I could be, you know, a super man, you know? Of of <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, that's a little. I, mean, I think that was more of the '90s and '80s kids like sniffing glue and like huffing paint, you know. But Toxic Avenger, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's kind of like. Do you see? I mean, maybe this is very broad and very cliche no, to to honestly, bring up. But I think you've got your finger on one of the most important distinctions between the companies. Chris Knowles goes into this in a lot of depth, but it's that there's kind of a line where DC heroes 
are given their powers by God or they came from another planet or they basically exist as, as a non-human form. You can never be Superman because you didn't come from another planet. You can't ever be, um, you know, like the son of Neptune, right? You, you can't actually have any of these right. crazy powers that are only given to you if you're a god or if you're a half god. And then Marvel comes along and it's like, yeah, I got bit by a spider or I, I fell into, you know, radioactive waste or I got gamma rays. We're all humans are mutating now and we're all just, you know, evolving with new powers. I mean, to me, because you see that in, in the Avengers, too, like, you know, they kind of that becomes the thing throughout Marvel Universe is like people are mutating. You know, I mean, they carry that into other comics beyond the X-Men. But it, to me, that is so fascinating because then Stan Lee had that TV show on history channel where he went around and he like interviewed people who can do quote unquote superhuman things like those Kung Fu guys who balance themselves on the tip of a sphere or, you know, what's his name, David Blaine or whoever freezing himself in ice and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's where the, the stories came from, where those legends, so like Iron Fist is a good example of that one. Even Doctor Strange, he goes and he he basically learns how to harness his skills from like these these kind of like kung fu masters all over the world. Right. So again, these are all essentially normal people that are unlocking some bigger power in them, which I always felt from a Marvel junkie that that was way more relatable and it was also not just that they were humans that had human flaws whereas Superman's flaws were like it always felt tacked on and it, and it was right. almost like screw this guy he thinks he's so good he's so powerful <laughs> whereas the, a lot of the Marvel heroes didn't have that aspect to them mm. and just like we were talking before it it didn't like there was a weird sexual tension between say Clark Kent and Lois Lane you know Superman and Lois Lane where he's this alien that would just like in the movie clerks you know he would just destroy lois lane his sperm would shoot out the back of her back and she would be dead because he has like superman sperm right so it was like this incompatibility but when you bring that over to the x-men you got these very human love triangles where gambit and rogue are in love but they can't ever touch each other because rogue would just basically absorb all of gambit's power but he's willing to almost die just to touch her and then you've got again that love triangle between logan and cyclops and um gene gray which again it, it was weird because you didn't see those same exact counterparts in the same way as dc because like who cares that these three gods are all like simping over each other that's just like every greek right. tragedy ever right it's like zeus turns into a swan and bangs this guy and then, he yeah. turns into a deer and then bangs this other but but in in marvel it was like you had to watch them live in a in a very human world and deal with human right. problems despite this guy can shoot playing cards and he can blow you up but he still has to deal with like regular human stuff and i i don't know i, I loved that part of it the dc never scratched that itch for me yeah well i think that's why i never really got into dc beyond like what was kind of popularly available i mean i know about batman because through the movies but even batman like he's a rich guy whose you know <laughs> parents were killed and now he's avenging their you know death against all criminals ever so he's like the ultimate good boy you know and i'm like the coolest thing about batman are the bad guys that he has yeah to yeah and then and, and like you know, I think the other thing that Marvel did really well, not to just like give them a big pat on the back, was they actually like 
talked about New York City as New York City, and a lot of their characters were kind of like revolved around real places. There were some fictional places, but for the most part, it was a real setting, whereas Batman's in some Gotham City, which is essentially like Chicago, New York City, and maybe like L.A. combined in a way. There's aspects of each. They're Mm. trying to make it so that if you read it in 20 or 30 years, it's, it's harder to date, whereas Marvel... They they didn't play that that conservatively. Like for example, they come out with Dazzler that just like represents the disco era, right? As a person, like it, it would be hard <laughs> to see DC coming out with something that was so time period specific, like Dazzler, and put everything behind it. Yeah, which I think is another just like a cool thing where like Marvel was definitely always playing to what was going on socially. And I mean, there's all sorts of interesting papers about how the X-Men is really like a social mm, right. story about these people that are in minorities in right. the book. It's yeah. Beast is a blue guy, but in like a human aspect, he might've just been a minority that didn't fit into any aspect of society. Right. And that also adds this extra layer that again, DC it's like everyone you're reading about in DC is the majority, or at least they're like the elites, you know, like they don't, they're not bound by the power of the masses or of like social sort of injustices. They, they yeah. just live above that because they've, they're godlike. Well, and, and it's almost like we're, we're as a human culture evolving past that idea. Like DC is still fitting into that like baby infantile version of reality where like the gods are our eternal, all powerful parents and we do wrong and they f- clean up our messes. Whereas Marvel's like, no, 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 like we're growing into the gods. We are becoming the gods. And this is a very, I mean, it's an idea as Chris Knowles writes about that's, you know, it doesn't just come from these illustrators and writers working for Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. Like it wasn't just, they didn't just come up with this stuff. They were drawing on, you know, occult esoteric doctrines that had existed possibly for a long time, maybe just a couple hundred years. The theosophists were kind of gathering all this stuff up and just regurgitating it, plagiarizing, putting it all, translating it into this like soup of really nonsense. And I feel like, you know, as much as there is a lot of good information in there, you need a 10, 15 year understanding of that topic to really pick up a Blavatsky book and, and understand it. You can't just like open that as your introduction to theosophy. If you just feed it to Chad GPT and like, <laughs> explain this to me. See, and we are going to get into that because I do, I, I, I got to applaud you, brother. Your music video that you put together for Joel was so freaking cool, man. I know, you know, obviously there's a lot of AI computing going on there, you you know, but even still, like you're talented just for knowing how to manipulate those algorithms to create something like that. That was such a cool music video, man. We can get into that because honestly, my love of AI clashes directly <laughs> with my love of comics because so many artists and writers right. and other creators I work with Hate almost it. like, are you fucking serious right. over here? Like you're promoting right. AI, like you're a monster. But I, <laughs> before we before we move on to that, I also wanted to mention you're talking about like the occult research and how it makes its insurgents in the comics. It's directly tied to what we originally started talking about. That comics came out of sort of pulp fiction, mm. and the pulp fiction themselves came out of magazines like Strange Tales or you know Weird Tales and 
like a lot of that where where a lot of our original sci-fi came from you know our, our original like lovecraftian style stories they all came out of these very rudimentary sort of strange tales magazines and it wasn't necessarily like someone read all of blavatsky's work and was like i'm gonna encode all of this knowledge into this short story it was more just like oh that's kind of cool i'm gonna write a story about this one aspect yeah and i'm just gonna completely fictionalize it oh yeah that was that was what they just did and that went on for so many decades and then eventually it was like hey what if we draw some cool artwork that goes with this and i think there was just this point when people realized oh wow this is its own sort of industry people that want to see the visualized version i want to just read it and come up with the visuals in my head. Um, and I even when that came out, there was like a technological Luddite sort of, you know, how dare you show us what we should be envisioning. All that should happen in my brain. You know, you're taking creativity away from the reader, which obviously isn't the case because it's a completely different type of person that maybe wants to read a graphic novel or a comic versus mm. like a short story. But they, they share the exact same DNA. They came from the same parents. Well, and, and that's kind of, I think, the reactionary, you know, view on anything new. Maybe we're seeing that with AI, but it is interesting that people were afraid that visual media or you know, graphic novels, what became graphic novels, what was it then like, people down. Yeah. yeah, they thought it was going to you know take away people's ability to visualize as they read, which I, you know, maybe I'm a product of this era, but I... I only gained that ability, we'll say, because I, I think because I liked reading a lot when I was a kid and I just kept go, kept going with it. But when you look at kids books, they're more art than they are words, you know, so like clearly that fear didn't latch on because all children's books basically adopted that format. And now we're all kind of taught like that to sort of see images and words paired together rather than just getting words and letting our mind do the, you know, connecting, which there's a whole conversation there, you know, going back to skull and bones and how they took, you know, a sort of a, a, a method of teaching that was designed for the deaf, dumb and blind and standardized it to perfectly capable minds, young minds. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, arguing that Luddite, you know, perspective, but maybe there's something to be, you know, considered there, like what kind of effect, you know, print word has as opposed to image and words. And even still, I mean, as opposed to what they had maybe four or 500 years prior, a utter lack of printed material, right? Where people just couldn't read anything. I'd say it's all a net benefit, but still it's curious, like, what kind of trajectory would we be down as human beings if we never had the illustrated sort of, you know, companion to text? When we're, we're also talking about the difference between movable type print systems versus when they started doing offset printing, which is where the half tones came out of. And before then, it would not have never been feasible to print something with so many different illustrations on every single page. Because before it used to be just like a, a plate that they would put at the beginning of every chapter or something in a book or like a certain illustration versus when, you know, the, the offset 
um, printing started to come out. Now all of a sudden it made that available. And just like you were talking about in the nineties, you're reading the comic and most of it's going over your head, right? Like you're not seeing the love triangles and you're not seeing all of this deeper sort of dynamics that's at play, probably because you were just as fascinated with the artwork and the cool muscles and the pouches and the guns and the lasers and stuff. So I almost think that it adds a whole extra dimension and a whole extra longevity to the comic. Cause now you can go back and reread it, you know, 20, 30 years later and pick up on all of mm. those sort of like deeper storylines because you're a little bit more mature and you, and you can relate to them, but the artwork is still just as good as, as you remember it from the nineties. Right? right. So right. I think that in some ways it makes it better, longer lasting, deeper uh, versus just having printed prose. Cause I think it's, like you can write all of that, but also one of the coolest aspects of comics are these subtle aspects. So for example, in a book, you do have a concept of a page turn, but it's way less impactful because depending on the size of the book, if it's a mass produced paperback, if it's a hardcover, the font size, it doesn't necessarily mean that when you turn page seven, it's always going to be the exact page seven. But when you're talking about comic books, when you do a page turn, especially if it's if you've got the page open in front of you and there's a page on the left and a page on the right, when you turn that right page, there's this passage of time and there's this action that you just did. So it's like me just turning that page also justifies if the scene completely changes. Like if all of a sudden there's a big explosion and I turn the page and now I'm like on a different planet. It makes so much sense because I've actually kind of like closed the curtain and reopened the curtain by doing that page turn. And right. that sort of dynamic among many others just doesn't exist the same way in books. You might get that from chapter to chapter where like one chapter might end on a cliffhanger and then the next chapter opens up in a completely different situation. So it kind of lets you know, Oh, I guess we're going to come back to that earlier chapter but in comics it's so much more in your face and there's also the concept of like a splash page or you know almost everyone remembers when they're reading through a comic and they turn that page and it's like bam a double page spread there's like no panels there's no text just one huge action scene and that feeling that you get of like oh wow like i don't even i haven't even read it yet but i know that there's a big treat in store for me just as you turned that page and kind of revealed it that same dynamic doesn't happen the same with books and this isn't a books versus comics kind of thing because they provide different experiences but that's such a unique comic only experience that you don't get in any other mediums even magazines you can have like an impressive pictorial that you kind of turn into but it's not like you open the page and like oh wow i can't wait to learn what story these pictures are about with the comics it's it almost as soon as you see this impressive graphic there's almost an inclination of like man let me go back and reread from page one because i didn't realize it was going to get this out of pocket i didn't realize they were going to like blow out the artwork here let me you know it's almost like seeing a, an incredible scene in a movie and thinking like man i want to rewind the last 15 minutes and like watch this build up again oh yeah i can think of a, a couple different instances where that's happened to me in my you know short little foray into getting back into comic books but i mentioned you know before that I had some examples I wanted to run by. I already talked about the Martian Manhunter thing, so we'll skip past that. But in this 350 issue of Captain America, I don't know if it's the first uh, iteration of Captain America, you know, or if it's another one, but this is the 350th issue. And it's 
it's so fascinating the way that this villain is portrayed in this comic book. He is this red skull. Yeah. It's red skull, but he he's not. He doesn't look red. Obviously, he's used some sort of technology to change the way he looks. And actually, he looks just like Steve Rogers. He's kind of cloned Steve Rogers' appearance somehow. And he's in this big, like, super maximum compound, and he's describing to, you know, himself as he's kind of self-narrating how, oh, you know, in the in World War II, I, I was an enemy of nations. Now, I, as my Aryan face helps me blend in, I, I realize that the true power can be gained as a man of, of who embraces the American dream, someone who takes like the corporate <laughs> ladder up to the reins of power. So he's describing like what we're literally it, like facing, you know, today when we look at guys like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, even, you know, these, you know, Klaus Schwabian like bloodline types to a certain sense. But it's interesting because keep in mind, Red Skull, he's a Nazi, right? He's he's an adversary of, you know, the Allied powers during World War II. That's what well, not all not just the- a Nazi. He represents that Blavatsky style occult knowledge mm. that the Nazis were fascinated with. He he himself, the Red Skull, embodies that Nazi occultism if it were a single person that's right. who Red Skull is. Right. And that's, but that's exactly what we saw happen after World War II is those Nazi evil interests converted into corporate sort of camouflage and maintain you, you those same say it interests. It started with corporate America and that inspired the Nazis. Right. And they just, in my, in my opinion, the, the Nazi just went too much into the occult, too much into the philosophical, mm. whereas the original Americans that started the eugenics movement that the Nazis kind of picked up on, they were always businessmen first. And right. like the philosophy and the cult stuff, like that was nice window dressing and it made them feel fancy. But at the end of the day, they were about consolidating power right. and, you know, adding some kind of structure and legacy and, you know, like the, the Bush family and the, the skull and bones, essentially. I mean, they were the ones helping finance the Nazis. So they, they were way more evil than mm. say the occult researchers in, you know, the Nazi camp at that point, but they were just businessmen. So they were kind of like sat above all of it. They were like the people moving the, the chessboard around. Right. Well, and that's, that's a big, I'm glad you, you got onto that. And I'm glad I brought this up because I recently got in touch with Walter Bosley to have him on the show and that's an area that we're definitely going to get into with him. It's this whole Germans in the United States before World War One, working in like the railroad industry, the banking industry, these huge German, mostly German co- companies that were... And know. medical industry is a huge one, man, mm. because almost all of the schizophrenia and dementia research that was going on prior to the 1930s was almost exclusively between America and Germany, or, right. you know, and Prussia. Right. Well, and who do we have, like, as the major psychologists, you know, who've pushed that whole science, uh, you know, into the forefront? They're all Germans, as far as I can tell. And it's not a coincidence. It's because that's where the money was going. That's where right. that Rockefeller money was going to fund all of these institutions in Germany and in the U.S. And it was it was very inconvenient for them when World War one and then two broke out because it sort of 
it, it didn't exactly facilitate that collaboration between America and Germany. It right. was still going on behind the scenes. As soon as the like, as the war was ramping up, and even as the war ramped down, the United States was all about just importing those Germans into our country, no matter what they did, it was like, get them out of there, get them over here because we can't afford to lose all this research. We've been funding this entire time. Right. And just to go back to the comic book, because you opened up yours. I want to, I want to show this off for our video audience. This is red skull standing in front of it from his corporate office, looking over DC. Right. And one of the, I don't want to give away this in case people go and read this issue. I think you can find it on Marvel's website, but yeah, he, he turns the new captain America against the old captain America by tricking them. And you find out in this issue that red skull has an informant in the white house in Washington, some Senator or some guy that commissioner or whatever. And it's the same guy that of course fired the original captain America and brought in this replacement guy. So now, you know, they're fighting each other and this whole thing goes on, but it's just to me, you know, this is how truth gets spread. Now we're doing it through podcasting. Maybe comic books were, one way that these conspiracies were sort of sifted through the culture. Cause as you said, people weren't really paying attention to them much after the whole sort of crash, but I don't know when this one came out. It doesn't have the year on the front. Let's see. 1989. That, that artworks, yeah. I was gonna say that artwork screams like late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. 89, which is, this is the style that I'm really into is that whole, that whole style. Cause that's what I first interacted with, you know, growing up seeing comic books at a young age. And yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to see those, like what we would consider like, I don't know, predictive programming in that format because especially with captain america like he's one of these characters who i look at and i'm like oh this is just like patriotism like you know it's not like there's not going to be anything like unique there but no it is it is fascinating to see the angle of these writers i i underestimated them well they also especially with captain america and that that storyline that you're mentioning where red skull has a inside informant uh, I feel like if it was a little bit closer to reality, it would have been like, oh, shit, half of Congress are actually Nazis. You know what I mean? Well, Instead of just the one guy. I think <laughs> it is more than one guy because when that guy gets killed by one of Red Skull's like poison gases that he shoots out of a phone, another guy goes and covers it up and he's a senator, too. So, yeah, they, I mean, yeah. Red Skull's <laughs> bought out probably half of them, I'm sure. <laughs> Here, so I got a, I got a bunch of the comics that I grew up with just to throw. And these weren't all just Marvel because we had a a place by my house called the comics in the attic. And you could go there and buy all the new comics that came out at cover price, but under all of like the tables, they just had bins and bins. And it was like 10 comics for a dollar or four comics for a dollar. So usually I'd go in there and just load up on the cheap comics. Cause I wasn't, I couldn't afford to like spend $4 on one book, but I could definitely spend a dollar and get four or five or six of them. So this one is the new humans from eternity comics. And you can see that it definitely has a completely different, like it's got that underground black and white style to it. Yeah. Wow. I got the original street fighter comic from Malibu. <laughs> this is when Malibu first kind of came out. And then this is the one that I remember the most growing up was Ralph Snart adventures. <laughs> and he was kind of like a prototypical 
Bart Simpson. He was just like a like a snotty little kid that just got into all kinds of trouble. And this one, I think he actually gets mind control. This might be one of the first mind control comics Whoa. I ever read. Yeah, I, I man, this Ralph Snart was like m- my number one influence in comics and the way that I just think. I mean, yeah. they're talking about we're doomed, we're going to be eaten by slug monsters, and he's like strapped together with this chick that's like always trying to get with him. Right. Even the artwork for the ads. I know this is corny to point out, but the ads on some of the in some of these are just like so chock full of nostalgia and like things that oh yeah dude look at this the back is yeah. a freaking ninja gaiden tiger handheld <laughs> electronic game like oh these things gosh. you know everyone had these back in like yeah. elementary school or whatever. i had a little racing one that you you know you only played one game on it i remember dude, look, those look how red this is this thing is so weathered i used to read this thing Hard just weather. nonstop. the cut co- the cover doesn't even stick on it anymore <laughs> but this was this was DC when they tried coming out with like black owned black creator comics. Okay. So they had hardware. Another one was Static Shock. He was like a really popular I one. I think Static, Static Shock, Shock had a, a TV show. Yeah, I, I watched that show. when I was a kid. I love. They that might show. even have a movie coming out, like a live action Static what? Shock movie coming out. <laughs> but yeah, this this is where it all came from. It came from this this angle of DC. Uh, what else here? I mean. Wow. Bill and Ted's excellent <laughs> adventure oh, wow. from Marvel. The The book isn't exactly the best comic in the world, but it just kind of was a product of its time. You know what I mean? This yeah. is the kind of thing that I was definitely reading. Yeah. And then like... I mentioned the Lobo one. This, I think this is actually one of the ones where it's called contract with God. Huh. Okay. See yeah. now, as you're saying that I remember coming across that comic when I was younger. Huh? You've got this guy that kind of looks like Wolverine. Yeah. No, I remember that. <laughs> or at least the similar artwork It was, it was very funny. Style. It was very satirical. All of these Lobo comics were. Yeah. Huh. But, yeah, here he is. I mean, just blood, all kinds of blood and <laughs> and nice gore and violence. And then here's some, some slightly newer ones. But if you haven't heard of these ones, conspiracy comics. Hmm. Each issue is on a different conspiracy. So this one's on lizard people. And you've got, like, a politician ripping his skin off. Right. There's one about Lucifer. It's got the big Masonic right. G behind it. Um, this well, one's on all. And that's Denver the thing Airport. that I I love about going back to some of these comic books is because I expected, you know, okay, obviously there are comics like that out there. I've I was first made aware of them by you because you put out some really cool comic books. One of them behind me that hits really close to home, the whole Geronimo's Skull Story, which is now an awesome comic book, which you sent me. And I love it. I have it on display. I got like two or three other copies. I give them away to people who support the show because you sent me a bunch of them. But uh, but yeah, I'm shocked to find like the X-Files having its own comic book. But now I'm sort of realizing, no, this is all sort of par for the course, right? Oh yeah, look at this one. This is from the Illuminatus trilogy oh, um, man. by Apple Productions. Now, this particular series wasn't great. I don't think it was a very good adaptation of this whole sort of premise, but right. just the fact that this book exists, and I, it doesn't have to be in plastic here. I can show you some of it. But I mean, yeah, the Illuminatus trilogy yeah. comic book. And this this predates, you know, me even being alive, pretty sure. Oh, Look at man. That. Yeah, drop dropping that G. <laughs> See, now that's that's the kind of stuff that I need to find more of. Cause yeah, I I have a pretty normy collection right now. Like I found a Star Trek comic book that was cool. I didn't know they had Star Trek comic books. I got a. This is eighty seven. It says oh, so. Wow. I guess I was alive. Okay. Okay. 
And then another one, Laughing Gas, that just made fun of Batman, clearly. <laughs> yeah. See, now I got I got the X-Files from, from zero to like seven. I think I got up to seven. And I'm still going back because they have... They have like up to issue twenty two at this shop that I go to, so I'm I'm planning on getting them all at some point. Just you know, making my way through them little by little, and the I don't I'm not familiar enough with the X Files to know if they're all based on shows. I've only seen you know a couple episodes recently, and I watched it here and there when I was younger on television when it'd be on cable. But I mean, straight out of the gate. Issues zero through three, I think, are dealing with government-controlled UFO saucers abducting people and, you know, Fox's sister is allegedly someone that might have been abducted into this program. And I'm not far enough ahead to know if he ever concludes that quest to find her. But, but yeah, I'm like sitting here burning through pages like oh shit i gotta go buy the next one this is so interesting i really just didn't i don't know maybe i i underestimated a comic book based on a tv show but it is such a good comic book the x-files well, not series. at all man i mean because x-files was killing it at that point right, right. that was like peaks peak x-files but also there wasn't even really dvr so i'm like unless you stayed up and saw X-Files as it aired or mm. caught the the rerun that was like a week later, then you might, you might like want to get your X-Files fix in the middle of the week. And the only way you could really do that was by grabbing one of these comics or doing some kind of like fan fiction angle. But if you think about it, like an X-Files comic would be the only version of X-Files that you could experience asynchronously on your own time. You could read a little bit, put it down, pick it back up. Unless, again, you were, like, recording X-Files episodes on VHS or something. But that would have been, you know, such an inconvenient aspect. So comics fit this this little niche that nothing else could fit at that time. Which I think is also one of the reasons why it's it's becoming a less popular medium compared to TV shows. Just because now you can right. just spin up any episode you want whenever you want. And it doesn't have to be asynchronous like a book might be. Right. Yeah, I, I again like some of them clearly say on the cover like oh based on this episode, but for the most part it seems like they're their own, you know, stories. Like it's not a direct just, you know, recreation of what happened on the TV show, which I think is even better. You know, it's like here's, more Here's X another Files. one too, man. If you like the X-Files, this is a Sliders comic. Yeah. And the Sliders comic was great. Like they they went into all kinds of cool little side plots that they I mean, another one of the reasons too why the comic books were so much cooler at times is because you would have to have an unlimited budget to pull off some of the things that happen on the pages of the comic. Mm. And when I first got into comics, it was actually the best advice that I got. I want to say it was from Donick Carey, who wrote for The Simpsons. He wrote for the, the Tonight Show, a bunch of different like TV shows and comedy. But he, he kind of gave me this great advice, and that's that when you're working on comic books, if you were trying to do this for a movie or a TV show, you'd have to figure out what your budget is for visual effects before you even start figuring out there's going to be an alien invasion and a hundred aliens come out and they start shooting lasers and the white house blows up. It's like, all right, you've just spent the budget for two Hollywood movies. So everything else has to take place in like the back of a car or in like a warehouse. Right. <laughs> but when it comes to comic books, 
every single page you can have twenty million dollars worth of you know you can have the White House blowing up on every single page if you wanted to, and it's not necessarily going to cost any different than if that entire scene took place in a dark warehouse where nothing happens. So because of that, you do want to sort of exploit that the best you can. So in a comic medium, you want to do things that are so outlandish that even if you did it for a TV or movie, it would make you go broke. So I think that's a really cool aspect that even today exists. Like even though you can do visual effects and they can basically make a live action of any comic book series you can think of. It also takes a lot of freaking people sitting at computers doing 3d and motion graphics and masking all this stuff. Yeah. And, and that still is a really cool aspect of comics that they, they haven't been able to match yet. Well, and, and I think, you know, since we're here, you know, I, I should ask you your opinion on a lot of like what, I think people see as like an oversaturation of these characters in movies uh, over the past 20 years. I mean, I'm a fan of the X-Men movie. I haven't seen, I mean, I've seen them here and there, but I haven't like sat down and watched all of them, but I sat down and watched the first X-Men movie last night. It was great. Like I I thought it was good. I mean, when you say the first X-Men movie, you mean the one from the nineties? Oh, see now I don't, maybe I'm, See, I'm missing something. I'm th- I'm talking about the one from 2000. So in my mind, that's the first one, but I'm wrong. Well, maybe that's one that I'm thinking of too. I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess it was made 2000, in the 90s. 90s, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's not a bad movie, but man, <laughs> that one was very disappointing at the time. Well, and that's what I was going to say. Like a lead role. And it's like Toad. Out of all the, the villains, we get Toad. <laughs> yeah, I was shocked to see how smart Toad was portrayed too, because in the comics, initially, he's kind of a dumbass. He's like an Igor, essentially. Yeah, he's kind of like Gollum or like, you know, I'll help you, master. Like, he's not really, like, thinking on it. They gave him, like, beast brains. Like, he was, like, thinking, like, ahead and doing all kinds of stuff. But, yeah, that's kind of where I was getting at is as good as that movie was, in my opinion, like, as somebody who appreciates comics as much as you do. I mean, you look at a movie like that and I guess that's one of the defining factors is like you really can't financially pull off all the cool stuff you see in the X-Men comic book. So, you know, ultimately these movies are going to kind of be disappointing unless they, I mean, are there any good examples that you like Spider-Man seems to be? Well, that's how it used to be. It used to be. You couldn't pull it off. Now you can pull it off and they have the budget to pull it off. Yeah. So now, now it's almost the exact opposite or it's too much. It's it's, like explosions. It's it's all just explosions. And it's just kind of like John Wick to feast on. But, but here's another here's another interesting and in my opinion kind of a sad dynamic that that arose around that same time. So late 80s, early 90s, all of a sudden it's not the comic books necessarily that have to sell anymore. So you don't need to worry as much about the quality of the stories, the art, or pushing the line. Now it's about the action figures and the cartoon shows. Mm. And, you know, little Jimmy wants to have an X-Men themed birthday party. So you go and you buy the napkins and the greeting cards and Valentine's comes around and everyone wants X-Men Valentine's chocolates and all of those little ancillary things. It switches the dynamic to now the books can be a loss leader. Like now 
I'm, I'm going to be a little bit flippant and oversimplistic here, but just imagine this like very horrible aspect of it where Marvel no longer has to care about the quality of the Spider-Man or the X-Men comics. They just need to keep putting them out to keep the IP living and fresh so they can keep pumping out Happy Meals toys and yeah. wrapping paper and like all this other stuff. Like if you just stop producing Spider-Man comics, then it kind of loses sort of its zeitgeist a little bit and no one wants to buy the Spider-Man action figure. But if you keep pumping the, the comics out, it doesn't necessarily have to be great, especially if you're shifting focus to people that are, you know, if you're going to make your money on Happy Meals toys and not the comic books, it changes this whole shift. And that's that's one of the biggest things as an independent comic publisher that I struggle the most with is because unlike DC and Marvel, where they can put out a comic and usually you want to sell at least 10,000 copies right off the bat. If, if you sell less than that, it's basically a commercial failure. They're probably looking to sell like 50 to 100,000 plus in order for it to be somewhat of like a commercially viable opportunity to keep pumping out those stories and make longer lines. But if you don't have to do that, because I know I can put out 20 comics and they can all lose all the money, but I'll make it back up in action figure sales and movie sales and t-shirt sales. Mm. Now all of a sudden you can just keep pumping out books and not have to worry about that because the tail end is where you get the money. Well, you know, from a small independent publisher, you can't rely on any of that stuff. There are no ancillary sales. Like you're lucky if someone buys the comic and buys a shirt, right? Whereas Marvel, like they might buy the shirt and never read a Marvel comic in their entire life, (sighs) but there's still a Marvel customer for life and the same exact thing happened at the comic conventions that was another thing that kept comic books alive through like a few of their different dips especially that 70s and 80s time period all of a sudden on like the west coast you had these comic conventions starting up a lot of those also backed by those underground kind of head shops but now if you go to a comic convention it's going to be movie premieres you're going to have the walking dead television cast there getting pictures taken (laughs) and it's very little people that are like want to know the latest spider-man issue or go and see what's happening in the comics everyone wants to see an advanced screening of like the next movie coming out so comic conventions are way more like movie conventions and Hollywood conventions at this point. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's just the over corporatization, if we will, of, of these, you know, mediums, these artistic mediums that I think informed people's upbringings. You know, you're someone who was raised on comic books. I can't claim I was raised on comic books, but they did play a big part of my, you know, interest as a kid, you know, it, it broadened what I was interested in and kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm like steeped in the nostalgia now. <laughs> I'm more of a comic book fan probably now than I ever was, but yeah, it's interesting like to see from my perspective of never conforming with mainstream stuff like now i'm kind of dipping my toes back into mainstream <laughs> stuff a little well, it's bit it's almost like not even mainstream anymore like at the time it was mainstream but right. now it's like this arcane occult right. lost knowledge almost right well yeah i mean it's, i don't know what the state of comic books is today but i mean well red, red school is a great example so for example you're probably, maybe they're going to prove me wrong, but you're probably not going to see a very heavy Red Skull Nazi-themed um, sort of like cartoon or Happy Meal toy come out because now all of a sudden <laughs> you can't sell Happy right. Meal 
toys if they've got swastikas on their arms. Well, check this out. There was I was kind of shocked to see this in the Captain America comic. There was a the Captain America number four was I guess a Red Skull or somebody like hypnotized oh, him. <laughs> Look at him. He's wearing the Nazi armband right there. <laughs> He's one of the Captain Americas. And I'm like, how the hell did they get a Captain America that was on like pro Nazi? But I guess he gets brainwashed by somebody and he becomes a grand dictator at Captain America. So I never knew about so that's that. That's a great but... example. Yeah. Imagine a grand imagine dictator like a toy. <laughs> yeah. Where, where Captain America gets brainwashed and starts fighting for the Nazis. Oh and then it's God. like, now go out and, you know, and buy a t shirt. Like it doesn't happen that same way. Right, so right. with the commercialization and the movies coming out mm. and, and banking on, okay, we don't care if the comics don't sell as long as the movie sells, as long as the, the action figures sell. Right. Then it's like, well, they might not sell if we've got nazis in here so let's just forget the nazi stuff maybe leave that for the books but don't ever bring that into the movies or anything that gets more into like this wide mass appeal so then it turns into like we were talking about when this first started out there's not a comics authority anymore because it's all self-regulated now the comics authority is oh crap if i write this into this scene does that mean that netflix isn't going to pick up the adaptation of this and mm-hmm. five, 10 years from now. Right. So there's a lot of self-censorship that I think happens because of what they, you know, people now they'll make a comic wanting it to be a TV show, not because they wanted to make a comic. Yeah. And I guess that's another byproduct of these streaming platforms getting an edge. Cause now you see like Hawkeye has his own series and Loki has his own series and WandaVision, whatever the fuck that is. And, you that know, was actually a really good one. Yeah. I, I don't know the, anything about it. I saw it on a toy packaging and I'm like WandaVision. Okay. What's, what's that? You know, but I mean, yeah, it definitely feels like they're kind of taking those ancillary characters and giving them their own sort of life and maybe like touching them up for the PC times that we're living in, you know, kind of picking the, which Marvel was always kind of forward in that way, but they also, they still had an edge, you know, that's what's interesting. Like that was edgy back then to be kind of on that counterculture and talking about social issues used to be kind of edgy because the mainstream stuff was all this, you know, whitewashed corporate kind of. That's a great, that's a great point, but now it's the opposite. Now it's like, social issues is the the commercially viable right. that's like you know have a pepsi and smile right sort of like you know kylie jenner kind of marketing right well i think that's that's that's, that's a great that's a great point <laughs> it, it definitely feels like you know it was more authentic when marvel was doing it 20 30 years ago you know when they're like writing it into the x-men's you know plot and genosha is like off the coast of africa and they're helping you know free people from apartheid like that was kind of appropriate for the times but now yeah it's like I mean, who knows when you know gambit's going to come out as they or they them you know or whatever is going to happen a good next. example of this actually just <laughs> right in these comics in front of me so this right here is terminator from dark horse okay this in my opinion was the the number one comic that absolutely rocked my world where i realized that not every comic just had to be about superheroes and sort of like PG rated. And that's cause I opened this book up and the first thing you see are just oh gosh. Bl- blood and boobs. <laughs> yeah. First thing you see is blood and boobs. I mean, this, this thing gets violent. There's bad words. There's mm. like all kinds of nonstop violent action in it. This is a, an amazing, amazing comic. The dark horse Terminator series. 
it, it blew my little mind. Like I probably should not have read this at the age I did. I might've been like <laughs> seven or eight or something. And it, it absolutely changed how I saw the world when I got so jazzed over that, that I was so excited when I saw a Marvel version of Terminator come out. Well, this version of Terminator, since it's made by, you know, one of the big guys and not by dark horse, they did want to play a little bit safer. And I believe that this is one of those examples of like, they were just trying to cash in on a popular IP and people trusted Marvel. And you knew if, you know, if I'm a parent and I'm buying this for my kid and it doesn't have a big warning symbol on it and it's probably decent to give to them. And it was, and it's also far inferior. It's a very boring comic. The story is very boring. The artwork's very boring, but this is an example of like dark horse didn't care about the ancillary, t-shirt sales and action figure sales they were really just making a really badass comic and then marvel they do care about all that stuff so the story and the artwork and everything else kind of falls to the wayside right and then you couldn't find two comics that were more different than these two in that regard even though they're about the exact same ip yeah yeah and as you're saying that i'm kind of like thinking about how corny like this old fantastic four issue that i got is compared to like what i'm more familiar with which is like what was popular what was coming out in the 80s and 90s and yeah i'm excited to go back to the comic shop and and look for some of these you know off brand kind of comics oh that's a cool one this Spider-Man is a cool one. this is where they were they were trying different things this is x-force meets up with spider-man i believe this is a, a mcfarland comic oh, they the got warpath in this one right is that warpath or thunderbird it is warpath and then and this one actually the whole entire thing is horizontal oh wow that's the cool. artwork's amazing i mean this this is something that you don't see very often either. Man, yeah. Twin, oh, Towers, Twin Towers. What? Yeah, when when did this come out? <laughs> Definitely before one. Yeah. I, I got this one at Universal Studios and I was just a little kid. 1991. Dude. All right. So look at that. Predictive yeah. programming. <laughs> the Twin Towers in an X-Force I didn't even remember that coming. was in there. Wow. I See, this is what I was hoping for. Like, I wanted to bring more examples of that kind of thing out. And we just stumbled upon one synchronistically. Look at that. And this one had a, a follow-up, too. You got Cable. Yeah. So the first one was X-Force meets Spider-Man. This one's Spider-Man meets X-Force. See, now that's that's one thing. That's one that I'm trying to get into is the, the Executioner song, like, saga. I don't know. Yeah, if, man. Because, like, I have... That's a great series. I have, a few, I have enough of them to where I'm like, oh, I could get all of these and then just read it because it crosses through X-Force, X-Factor, X-Men. It's like a crossover of all the you know X-Mens that were at the time. But I have a, a few of them. I remember getting one probably with, like, the Cable Marvel Toy Biz action figure because that that was when they put a comic book in the in the box with the action figure, which I always thought was that's and actually a trading card too. The Marvel series one right, trading cards, right? Well, that's kind of how I got into comics. It was through the action figures because by the time you know I was into this stuff, the comic book market was more geared towards like teenage adults like they were like you know kind of like dark little comic book shops that you could go to but i wasn't going to those as a kid i would just get him from the bookstore or from the toy store you know and that's kind of how i got into it but yeah executioner song that's one that i'm trying to put together i don't know how i first got that issue but it was either that or from a friend who sold me a few 
like six or seven years ago, a friend was like, oh, I got some comic books. You into this kind of stuff? I'm trying to get rid of them. I'm like, yeah, I'll buy a bunch of them from you. And that's that's how it kind of started here. But yeah, man, I appreciate you indulging me. I know my audience is like, why did we just spend this much time talking about comic books? But Thomas has been a fan of, of my show. He reached out to me, I believe, or I reached out to him like way back when you were first on the show, episode 44. And now how many years later, maybe two years later, you have your own podcast. It's it's coming through the Almost. YouTube. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on one. Well, YouTube did this thing now where they're like, oh, yeah, we got podcasts, too. So technically, you have a podcast on YouTube. That's right. That's right. And I think people should go and check out your, your show and support you because you've been a, a supporter and a fan and a friend of this show for as long as this show's existed. So I appreciate it. And it's just kind of funny for me because when I first first interacted with you i was like oh comics that's cool like conspiracy is great and now it's like really like i don't know what the right word is it's grown on me i guess and now i'm just I, i'm like oh it's this the, it's the perfect medium man for a lot of the reasons we were talking about before where right. if you wanted to make an animation or like a little documentary good luck putting together like a big project monarch woodpecker grid and underground base under the denver international airport and stuff and but with a comic book you can illustrate all that stuff happening and even even better especially when it comes to these conspiracy topics a lot of it gets very convoluted and complex and there's like all these names and dates and you have to keep track of and there's alternate sort of storylines mm. but that kind of fits perfectly into that comic world because you can slow it down as much as you want if it's a complex subject you can literally illustrate it you can put faces and names together that's another cool thing is that people that you might not even know what they looked like, right? We might have some images of like Adam Weissop and, and Baron Von Nye, just kind of second in command at the Illuminati. But with comic books, you can like kind of create what those guys look like and craft them and build them over time yeah. way less than casting someone in a TV show or a movie where now like that person's face becomes this character in a comic that can shift around a little bit. Look at red skull, red skull can like shift into, you know, a, a purely Aryan looking human being and not always have to don that kind of red skull outfit. And it's such a seamless thing that if that were to happen in a movie or a TV show, it kind of comes off campy. Cause it's like, Oh, they're just trying to save money by not putting the red skull outfit on them in this scene. Mm. And that very is, that's very likely the reason why they do things like that. But in the comic, there can be a narrative reason for why that's happening. Mm. So I, I think the, the dynamic just makes it uh, so much more impactful and you can bake more into it. You can also put little footnotes, right? In a comic book, in a movie, it's like you're covering things so quickly. It's not like the movie's going to pause and be like, by the way, if you want to learn more about the Bavarian Illuminati, you know, 1776, Inglostat, here's the names and dates. Yeah. In a comic book, it's just like a little asterisk and then bam, it's right down there. Yeah. That, that doesn't have a counterpart. The closest thing I could think of would be like, vh1 pop-up video or something but it doesn't really exist outside of a very niche amount of video content well and that's why i love these pamphlets that you sent Hell me yeah. <laughs> which you have available through your website and you have like really cool artwork in that same kind of style we're talking about there you go you're showing mm -hmm. it off and Exactly as you say, you have little points in throughout this where, you know, you drop names of programs, names of important people, you're illustrating what they look like. 
I, I've dropped a few of these off around the Yale campus. Hopefully it leaves an impression. On <laughs> I appreciate it. That's exactly, that's exactly what those panelists were for is for dropping that off. And I right. want to, I want to show you a few others that you and maybe your audience has never even heard of that are wealth worth checking out. Oh, cool. So this is a comic called the sinister truth and it's all about MK ultra. This is, I want to say it's 2009. Um, it's all black and white, but man, this is one of the coolest freaking comics because it tracks the experiments of Sidney Gottlieb, but it does it in a very humorous way. It, it takes a detour on all the different ways they try to kill Castro. So here's some examples where like they try to put thallium in his shoes to make his beard fall out because they thought it wouldn't turn him into like an effeminate man and people <laughs> would like lose their trust in him. So this is just a, a huge book about all these different MK ultra and Castro related sort of projects. Damn. This one here is called The Red Diaries. This one's all about the JFK assassination and Marilyn Monroe's possible role in some of it. It even gets into RFK towards the end. Huh. And this one's another. Usually if it's black and white, this is an interesting concept where some people see a black and white comic and it's automatically their brain turns off and it's like, next, let me let me keep looking until I find one that's got color. But you got to remind yourself that when you see a comic without black and white, chances are they're doing something that would make it commercially non-viable to go through that extra color process. Probably, I mean, either the story is just really bad and someone just like made it in their garage. Maybe that's the reason. But for another example, like getting into JFK, the amount of money it would cost to color every single one of these pages and still be commercially viable. It, it just automatically puts it into this really weird niche of comics. Mm. So it's, I would definitely say once you get over the initial hump of getting in the comics, start looking in the black and white ones because it's in a whole entire different world out there. Well, this and- is another great example. The Clinton cash graphic novel in my mind, this is like oh, one of the God. coolest things that you can use comics to do. What a boring topic it's just about like money laundering and the clinton foundation and how they just siphon cash between all these different sort of you know philanthropic sort of institutions for political means but once you actually animate it and you put you know explosions and you've got like all this fun dialogue and 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 visuals you can take these really sort of boring topics and make them interesting to look at Um, so just like the mk ultra right mk ultra at its heart was just the government funding academic research. Right. How how fucking thrilling, right? <laughs> but once you start animating it and you put images to it, it picks up a little bit of a life of on its own. And I also tie this into like memory palace techniques, where if you've got a visual anchor that can encode way more, like if, if I take this MK Ultra pamphlet, for example, I can I can grab any of these ones. So this one right here is just talking about Operation or Project Bluebird 1950. And it's got this little guy and he's kind of getting hypnotized. And there's like a bluebird here. And there's like some watches to kind of represent the hypnosis. But this image kind of anchors that concept. So now I don't even have to see the letters anymore. And I know exactly what this panel is about. And I can give you a whole sort of backstory on Operation Bluebird just because this visual kind of anchored it to me. The same way that this one right here, Project Chatter, the images on the top, you've got these angel trumpets hanging down. That represents the Torah and scopolamine. You've got opium poppies and a little cola of butt on the bottom that represents all of the marijuana and the opium research that they were doing as part of Project Chatter. 
So again, like just reading, reading that through without having the visual, it doesn't give you that same impact. And now when you have those visuals, it just embeds it deeper into your mind. So then as you reading a comic book in the nineties, you might gloss over it, but then you read it again 20 years later and it's like, Oh wow, I remember that visual. And now that I'm actually paying attention to the story, like you care more about the story because the visuals already embedded in your mind. Mm. So, and that's, that's something that's hard to understate how powerful that kind of a thing is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think it's going to be even more important moving forward, you know, with attention spans dropping due to things like TikTok and video games. Who knows? Maybe comic books are going to be an intermediary for people who just, you know, for whatever reason, never got into printed material at all because they were just ingratiated into the, the digital medium from a young age. I mean, I can see that being the case 10 or 15 years from now where there are people who have never read printed word. They've only read things off of screens, right? I mean, we are well, approaching I, that when age. When I was at Disney, man, I saw we used to do focus groups where they would just grab, you know, like a family out of the park and be like, hey, we'll, we'll pay for your parks tickets today. Just come and like do some experience and tell us what you think about it. And we'd give them like a um, one kid got like a book or he got like a comic book that was supposed to explain some kind of backstory and seeing the kid take a physical printed book and swipe the cover thinking that like the page would turn digitally because they had never felt a physical book before they were so used to having an ipad and seeing kids like swipe a physical book it's like mind-blowing like you realize that that's not (laughs) real life like you can't you know books don't have touch enabled swipe gestures but that's sort of what you're up against at this point where not only are they not familiar with the written word but they're not even familiar with the mechanics of how a book works right they're just so into the ergonomics or whatever they call that like a haptic feedback right where now you can like get a a touch sensation the screen kind of responds to you in a way where like I do it sometimes with my phone. That's probably the most I interact with a touchscreen is just through my phone. I don't have an iPad or anything like that, but I know now like, wow, my thumbs are hitting these buttons. Like they know where the keys are and that's not possible unless I get like a boom back. Right. If it was just Mm -hmm. a flat screen, it would be a lot harder for my brain to remember like, okay, QWERTY, you know, and all the, when I'm typing, but yeah, it's just kind of interesting how now they're kind of getting past that. What a, what a book should be able to do, which is like, you have like a sensation of feeling and touching it. Like now they're evolving past that into this, like, Oh no, this is better. It's digital. You know, there's cool colors when I hit the screen, you know? (laughs) And I got to say on that topic too, I'm definitely not a purist. I have way more comics digital now. And I've actually gone through a bunch of phases where I downsized my comic collection and replace them with the digital versions of it just Mm. for space reasons. And I just, man, after you move and you've got like, for me, it was vinyl records and comic books. Oh God. (laughs) After like a big move, it's like, what am I doing here? Why do I have like tons and tons of comics when they could all just be in my pocket or like on my phone or like on some iPad. So I'm definitely pro digital comic. And I love that you can leave off in the middle of it and like bookmark it or be reading like 20 different comics at a time. And then the one that you open, it'll bring you back to the page you were on and Mm. you can double tap panels and make them full screen. There's all kinds of cool 
features with it that I would never want to give up. So I'm there absolutely are comic purists that only want to read comics when they touch the paper and being a comic publisher. I've also realized something that maybe seems obvious now, but when I first started out, the type of person that buys and reads digital comics is very unlikely to be the same person that buys a printed comic. So if I find someone that wants to read my comics, they, I might be finding a person that wants to read it digitally. I might be finding someone that wants to buy it and read it in print. And then there's also people that don't even want to buy or read a comic until the trade is out. So just like you were mentioning, if I know that this one floppy is part of a six part series, I don't want to get four issues in and then realize I got to go and hunt down issue five or issue five is like $90 because they have a less of a print run or whatever, all those dynamics there's some people that as soon as they see oh that's not the whole story i'll wait it's the it's the same premise as that oh a new netflix series came out oh but it airs every week well i'll wait for all the episodes that air so that i can go and binge watch it so because some people prefer that so again it's it's not like you make a comic and comic readers just come you got to find the person that wants the floppy if they don't want the floppy well you better have a plan to make the trade paperback at a certain point. Yeah. And and that even gets into like a more practical sense where if, if I had a regular book, like if I got this, the chosen one issue right here that, that you're on the front of. Yeah. Um, that's the trippiest thing for me is like, I got into comic books after I've already been in one <laughs> myself. Like I, not that I didn't care. I really appreciated being a part of that. I love it. I think it's so cool, but I haven't even received a copy of that yet. And I'm now I'm a huge <laughs> fan of comic books and I'm like a main character in one. So, and, and this example, this is technically a floppy comic, right? right and right. it's classified as a magazine. So I wouldn't even be able to send this to a traditional book publisher or a book reviewer because it shows up and they're like, what are you sending me magazines for? This is, I don't do this garbage, but the second that I can put four of these together and it gets a perfect bound spine. (laughs) Now all of a sudden it's magically a book and now I can give it to a book reviewer and they'll be like, Oh cool. You wrote a book, but it's so weird that until I've got, I think it's like 48 pages. Like until you get to the, the magical number 48, you're just making a periodical or a magazine or a floppy comic. The second you get the page 48, it's like, Oh wow, you wrote a book. It's a graphic novel now. So these, these weird semantic rules, but it exists to where I can't get nearly the same reach on a regular floppy comic. Cause this has to go through a comic book shop. But once it gets long enough, now it can go into Barnes and Nobles or Walmart or, you know, any other like major retailer that sells books and not necessarily periodicals. Mm, Well, I I don't care what it costs. You'd let me know. Send me some of those. I'll pay for the shipping or whatever. But please send me at least. I'll make make you right, man. I got I think I got a version with you on the cover, too. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The variant. Oh, that's so cool. Well, and I should say, you know, somebody. Uh, you may be familiar with, I think I hit you up about this, but Plaid Claws sent me this really cool comic, one called Void Trip, and this one in my hand called The Hive Mind or Hive yeah, Mind. Void Trip is an amazing, I haven't read Hive Mind. Void Trip is absolutely amazing comic. Yeah, so it's really cool. I mean, he obviously listens to the show, and there are guys like you out there doing this independently, which, you know, I think is an, an awesome way to create a culture where these kind of open-minded ideas 
find form, you know, because it's one thing to talk about these ideas on our shows or or just have conversations about these subjects, you know, MK Ultra and whatnot. But as you were saying before, to have like a visual anchor, it, it, it establishes something that I think is superior, you know, and I, I'm curious now, like, as far as like what my audience is interested in, like maybe they'll be interested in something like that in the form of merch from this show, because I was just talking to Brandon Thomas who put out like this really cool, this really cool journal notebook workbook type thing to go along. Oh yeah. He showed us this. I love this man. It's like a a thing that you, you use in tandem with the show. Yeah. And I think like this is, this is what we have to evolve into, not to just like sell crap to people because this isn't crap. First of all, this is awesome. But I, I just think like it's not about like merch because, you know, I don't know about you, but I have too many T-shirts and I have like only a certain amount of outfits that I even wear. So like <laughs> right. I'm just holding T-shirts in my closet. So I'm not going to go and collect a bunch of podcast T-shirts anymore. But clearly I love printed material and this is the kind of thing that I want to I think if people are listening to this show, they also probably love books too, or that, you know, in this case, they might like comic books as well if they're tuning into this episode. So well, that's well, the direction that it's, it's way harder to find a comic audience and then sell them on conspiracy theories. Um, it's, it's much better to find someone that's into conspiracies and occult research and then say like, Hey, by the way, not every single angle of this research has to come from a YouTube documentary or, or from some like right. doom and gloom outlet. That's, that's actually the original inspiration for wanting to do comics was that every angle of research that would go into, it was always just like, and this is why, you know, the book of revelations is going to come true any day now. And Satan's going to come on the earth and we're all doomed and it's all hell, hell, hell and torture right. and Nazis. And, and I was like, I want like, where's the dick jokes? Where's like the fun, colorful, cartoony aspect of this. Right. And I, and I, hopefully I've found a decent balance where like, for example, in my time samplers issue three, I cover some really heavy topics. I cover a project monarch and, and mind control from like torturing a small, you know, fetus. And then as soon as it's born, you put it into a woodpecker cage and you electrocute a little, and it sounds horrible in words, but when you see it printed in the comic book, it's done in such a way that it doesn't have to be dark and glo- like it is definitely dark and gloomy, but it just, it constitutes itself on one page and you just keep reading and the very next page. It's got like something silly happening. Someone smokes DMT and they go to like wizard of Oz and that kind of juxtaposition is extremely hard to do even in like a video or like a documentary to have one scene and immediately cut to something that's completely different. It's, it feels so much more obvious guard or almost like oh they're trying to be artsy here mm-hmm. but again in the comic medium it's that page turn man when i physically turn that page it's like you're you're cleaning the slate for your mind to be available of oh wow i was just looking at something really dark and now i'm looking at something that's totally funny and and making me laugh and it's there's something normal to that mm-hmm. it doesn't happen in other mediums right so a, a long-winded way of saying that if you like this type of research finding more and different ways to consume it and get this information. It only helps, you know, it just gives you a much broader sort of area to like pull things from like the MK ultra pamphlet. If you were trying to explain MK ultra to a friend or a family member, you might get gloss in the weeds, but if you've got these cool little visual anchors, 
all of a sudden you just remember, oh yeah, this guy that's controlling a bull with the remote control, and there's like a little antenna coming out of its head. That represents this research by, you know, Dr. Jose Delgado and a whole bunch of other sort of aspects of it. So, yeah, I think having those visuals just makes things way more approachable. Yeah, well, and we're coming up on the top of the hour almost here, and I do have another show booked after this. I hate when this happens. I got to fix my Calendly so I don't have to do this, but if my next guest gets back to me, we should have enough time to close out this because... You know, you're kind of pushing boundaries, as you said before. You're even kind of ruffling some feathers among your artist friends because you're kind I've, of yeah. I've, I've lost some some contacts well, for sure, just through supporting AI. Well, and I think people, you know, again, like we described when this whole medium even arrived, people luddites were like, "Oh no, you're gonna ruin your imagination by reading the funnies." You know, you, you can't see, <laughs> you know, that those kind of you know images mixed with words. I mean, you can't that's draw kind of Tom Sawyer. It ruins the whole thing yeah right and that's it's ridiculous now and but i i understand why people may be afraid of ai i'm not suggesting that in a 100 years we're going to think of it the same way maybe it's completely different but it is interesting to see like people reacting that extremely to something like this i've seen a bunch of your content that you put out you've tricked me a bunch of times with yeah, your ai <laughs> I, i'm serious people you know you you don't put a warning there i'll give them a warning i don't i don't do that as often anymore that was mostly like the tv shows or movies or yeah, something that like was really media. fun man because yeah. i like i like coming across those things where it's, it's it's like nostalgic you know like an old tv show or something like maybe i caught it when i was a kid at nick and night or whatever you know and and, and you tricked me a bunch of times with those. And I guess AI is moving forward to the point where you can kind of, I mean, you could recreate things that it'll be real soon, dude. Like, like one of the examples was, you know, like my friend ball or, or there was like a fraggle rock Knights Templar episode that didn't actually exist. I just made frames from it, but I'm nearly positive in the next like two years or so you'll be able to just go and be like, show me a 20 minute episode of Fraggle Rock about the Knights Templar and it'll just happen. See now. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what I was kind of getting at is like, how fluid is this matrix we're living in? You know, I mean, I'll give you one example. I'm sure this was here the whole time I've been in this apartment, but last night I looked up at the ceiling and there was like this like cap on what used to be maybe like an outlet for a light bulb or maybe like a fire, you know, detector or whatever smoke detector i never noticed it for whatever reason i look at it i'm like whoa that was never there before you know and it probably i probably have noticed it and just forgot but you know <laughs> like you have that experience where you see something and you're like was this here before another example is i was cleaning the carpet just before and i found this little like plastic toy gun that goes with like a gi joe or something that i for the life of me like i have never i don't remember ever owning a GI Joe with that kind of little gun or like a star Wars figure with that kind of gun. But I just found it on the carpet. I'm like, Did this fall through a portal. Like what is going on? <laughs> but I, I feel like that could happen with these AI creations. Like you, to your point, you imagine 
an, an iteration of a show that existed, an episode that didn't, you put it out there, and then maybe five years from now, there's a Wikipedia article, and there's like five people attributed to creating this thing that we both know that you spun up on an AI computer. It's kind of like worked itself into someone else's real reality, someone else's timeline. Like a timeline. Slender Man almost. Right. Well, and that's that's a good example of that. Those girls had, you know, whatever, if that story is true or not, you know, they had some crime they committed because they thought they were interacting with what was created on an internet forum, you know, like a literal. And it's true enough now, at least when it right. comes to like folk stories and urban legends. That's how they're I created mean, in the first place, even in some in some respect. Right. I mean, it's all sort of whispered <laughs> behind closed doors and then it becomes a rumor that spreads. Yeah, I think the weird part of AI is that it doesn't need the same consistency. Like originally you'd have to have someone that comes up with the story and then that theme has to continue in order for that thing to be cohesive. But with AI, it's like you can just come up with an aesthetic or a feel or just a general version of something and then AI can recreate that thing in a completely different style so it still has part like like i'll give you some examples is you can take say you know a marvel aesthetic or a jack kirby aesthetic and then pass that through ai and have like what if jack kirby drew the x-files comic well he definitely didn't draw the x-files comic the x-files comic doesn't even exist anymore Jack Kirby doesn't even exist anymore, but with AI, you can absolutely see Jack Kirby drawing an X-Files comic in AI. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying that. It would take a long time to like get it to nail that style, but in the near future, it'll just be like, you know, write and draw me an entire X-Files comic by Jack Kirby, and it'll just be able to do that, and it'll, it'll nail it so close, I think, that it will look like it, and it will read like it, so I don't know if that's any less or more real it's just because jack kirby himself didn't do it while he was alive does it does it not mean that it's his if he creates it after he's dead just based on an amalgamation of all his other works i don't know it's 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 an interesting topic i think well and and do you think this like could particularly like confront the comic book world with another sort of crisis where maybe now we're gonna see like fake spider-man original comic books created oh, yeah, no, by it's ai it's going to happen in phases so the the first one that'll be harder to detect will just be writers using chat gpt which is already happening across the board i almost guarantee it i bet a lot of writers would probably be afraid to say oh yeah well technically 10 percent of this script was done by chat gpt to like punch stuff up or like 90 um, percent and 10 well, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm being generous <laughs> but the very the very next step that's going to be way more obvious is probably going to be comic coloring so it, yeah. it's probably harder to to replace a pencil artist or even an ink artist the coloring might be a really easy way where you just train the black and white versions of your page imagine if you're marvel and you've got you know hundreds of thousands of pages i could just feed that to an algorithm say here's the black and white version now here's the color version because i've got both now that you know that what the difference is between the black and white and the color i'm just going to feed you a bunch of black and white pages and now you tell me what the color versions of those would look like wow. and once that looks good enough I mean, the colorists are out the doors in that regard. Right. And then it goes for the inkers. Now it's like, okay, here's the pencil and here's the ink version. Now make me the inks without me having to hire an inker. The The final step is when you just say, here's a high level concept, write it for me, 
pencil it for me, ink it for me, color it for me, you know, wow. do all of that. And I mean, that's, we're not talking science fiction anymore. We're talking, I guarantee you someone at Marvel or DC is trying to figure out how to do that right now because, you know, how much cheaper and quicker would it be if you don't have to wait, even a professional artist, you might get three pages a day or something, but they're going to burn themselves out. A lot of, of pro artists, they try to limit themselves to a few different titles per, you know, per year that they're working on with AI, man, you know, the AI can do like, a hundred books in a day so you don't have to worry about those human limitations anymore right right as it augments our creative process it's interesting to see where it takes hold of that creative process and then like how creative are these works once they get to the point where 90 percent of it is done by a computer at that point it's like i mean we're playing with this sort of creative engine and I would, I mean, I guess the Luddite, the naturalist, the individualist perspective on that would be like, well, what happens to my creative potential, my creative power <laughs> if I'm forfeiting, you know? I mean, especially the economic drive is going to be taken away, right? So now it's only people who are motivated because they love these arts to participate in it. Because anybody who's, in, you know, interested in it for the money, I mean, where's the money in it, you know? And I think it's just going to... Well, those artists, typically, they would have to go and work for industry. Like, almost everyone that I ever worked with at Disney, it wasn't like that Disney project they were working on is the thing that they wanted to work on. But it's a huge form of validation that this huge you know, media conglomerate wants to use your work. And then it also means that you can go out and be like, Hey, I did this thing for Disney. So clearly you can trust my work and I'm at that sort of level, but it also means that the second Disney is like, Oh, it's way cheaper to just have AI do all of this. Then it's not like there's going to be a lot of artists. They're like, damn, I really wanted to work on that Disney ad campaign for the Disney cruise line or, or whatever. I really wanted to make that promotional material. That's so much of the creative world. I also do a, a show with Zertus called SyncTac on Tuesdays. Mm. Um, and we, we talk with Eddie and Eddie Lynn is a concept artist for a lot of like major TV shows, movies, you know, you name it. When he's kind of on the front lines of this, where he'd probably be one of those first people that sees some of the work going away, especially concept art. Cause the concept art, doesn't necessarily get shown to the final viewer, right? It's, it's kind of like the back end. It's so like all the storyboards and stuff. So one of those things is going to, is going to give way first. But I, I think here's this, the, I don't want to say funny. I will have the perfect word for this, but an interesting dynamic here with AI is that if I were to hold this up to you and you're like, man, I really like that cover. You know, I like the, the coloring and the line work and, and everything you might objectively, or you might just say like, I like that artwork. But then if I tell you, Oh, by the way, this is all AI generated. None of this was done by a human. Now, all of a sudden it's like, there's this, this internal conflict where you just admitted you liked the artwork you saw. And only after finding out it was all AI generated. Now it's like, Oh, I changed my mind. I don't like it anymore. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, you were, you were talking about a visual aesthetic that you saw with your eyes and, and as soon as you saw it, you were like, I like the way that looks, the, the, the gestalt and the proportions and the color theory, whatever it was, you know, I just like the way that this looks. But then if I tell you, oh, it was AI generated, now you don't like it anymore. Like, how does that work? Where 
it's almost like cancel culture in your own brain, right? Oh man, I love this artwork I'm looking at. I love this music I'm listening to. And then someone says, oh, by the way, that music was all AI generated. You've got people saying like, oh, I don't like it anymore now. Like, well, what changed? The only thing that changed was someone told you that the thing that it came from is something that you just object to, but that didn't, that didn't make it like less appealing to your ears, or your eyes, all of a sudden that was like your brain getting in the way. Mm. So th- I think that's in this controversial area where some people say, no, that's justified. If I find out after the fact that it was AI created that I'm allowed to not like it. I just think that at that point, you're just kind of playing mind games with yourself and you're like convincing yourself you do like things or you don't like things based on the materials that were used to create to create all that. It would be like going back and looking at a painting in a museum and being like, Oh, I love that painting. And then someone's like, you know, they didn't even mix their own pigments. They just bought the paint from, you know, like a, a paint shop. Like, Oh, they didn't crush their own version of Phoenician <laughs> blue and paint that into the thing, you know, yeah. or they didn't crush their own dead beetles to get that shade of red. Oh, well I take it all back. I don't like what this painting is anymore. Right. It's sort of on that same vein. I think. I I hear you. I think a lot of people are kind of warming up to that approach now. And essentially, I think it's only going to drive the price of, you know, original, we'll say, artwork higher, right? Because if if somebody has a computer alternative, they have a human alternative, they're going to go with the computer, you know, if they're worried about cost. But if somebody wants quality, You know, maybe this is going to be something that isn't so much of a cognitive bias as it is like a qualifier, right? I mean, people can, you know, understand why we wouldn't go through that extreme process of crushing dead beetles and sourcing all our pigments ourselves. But if a painting has a better hue or quality to it because of those raw materials, and you know that, well, maybe it does drive the value up, right? Because that's a process the artist. But went now we're through. talking about like some art expert that's <laughs> right, like right, giving right, tours right. of the museum, not right. just a layman that's like, I like how that looks. Right, right, right. Which I think is where a lot of that starts from. Well, and I think a lot of people in this world would argue that art to begin with is a lot of money laundering when you get into those higher levels, anyways. I mean, look at some of the stuff that Warhol put out. I mean, it was definitely marked the beginning of the end of you know what was like exquisite art but but yeah i think as far as like impactful art goes the comic book subculture has kind of carried that through for people i mean there's graffiti artists there there there's muralists there's you know people who do portraits and things like that but if you think about like the main industry that drives artists would you say it's kind of it has to be like this type of work or maybe like animating right at this point in time. I mean, what other options does an artist have like advertising? It depends on how much money you really want to make. If you want to make that real money, it's definitely in the art world. It's getting the Podestas to like fund, you know, your, your little like passion project. That would be the number one route. And honestly, that's such a strange world that's a hundred percent gatekeeping. That's also where a lot of the, the anti AI sentiment is at its strongest, I think, Mm. because now all of a sudden, like anyone's got the keys to that kingdom. And it's just a matter as if you admit you're using cheat codes, right? If I don't say that I'm using like the most recent one is someone 
uh, a professional photographer entered some photography competition and generated the images on like mid journey and won, and then basically said, I'm not going to take the, the trophy because this was all AI generated. There weren't actually photos, uh. but it was an example of like, you wouldn't have known unless this guy told you. And wow. because he already had the credibility, if he just said, yeah, I took that picture, no one would ever question him right. because he had the rapport to it. But it was all just AI generated, which again brings back to this concept of like this weird Turing test area, which I think we've blown beyond the Turing test, now, which is where a human can tell that a machine made something. I yeah. don't think we can anymore. Well, and, and yeah, this that's a great point. This may be a totally different point, but how much of that artist's, you know, prestige and reputation got him in that top spot already? I mean, because that seems to be a lot of what the art world is even geared on anyway, is, is like, who is the artist? What are they? What's their reputation? I wonder if somebody came into that competition with those same pieces, but they had, you know, anonymous as their art you know, name or whatever, if they would make it to the top, you know, of it's a, that's a great point. Yeah. And it, and again, it's like you, they're trusting the source. And then only after they find out that it was AI generated now, all of a sudden, Oh, that's not a real photo anymore. How dare you trick me? It's right. Like, Wait a minute. You know, if it's that easy to, to fool your senses, is it really even deception or is it just, I showed you a thing that you appreciated well, the artistic merit of yeah. regardless of how it was created. And to your point, like earlier, like, you you know, just because somebody doesn't have one of those freaking like hooded contraption cameras that, you know, takes a photo onto a glass plate, eh, does it make it any more valuable than like someone with a snapshot Kodak that like prints it out right away or whatever? Well, I mean, you know, when like, photography first came out, it was like, oh, that's horrible. That's not real art. Only yeah. real artists would sit down and draw all of that. And then even before that, there was like the camera obscura where it's like how dare you poke a hole in that piece of paper and then just trace the reflected light that's just tracing that's not real art so it goes back as far as you want mm. to, to bring it to like a modern version of this because again i'm a book publisher i've been doing this for 10 plus years i've got i think i'm coming up on like 60 unique titles and like almost a thousand pages so i've definitely looked into can i use ai to just wholesale make like an entire comic book and the, the problem that you run into is that you have to give up at this point a whole lot of control where it's like, Jesus, take the wheel or AI, take the wheel. Like, mm. I want this particular image and it comes back. You just have to be OK with just kind of accepting the best version. And that's why sometimes you you generate the same prompt like 10 times and you pick like your favorite out of those 10, you know, different variations. Right. Mm. But imagine trying to do that for an entire book where you've got hundreds of panels and the panels have to have consistency where it actually matters if the guy's hairstyle changes from one panel to the next, or if he's got a mole on his chin, that mole needs to be in the same place on his chin in the next panel. And in order to achieve that level of consistency with AI, it takes far more effort and time than it would be to just commission an artist to do these things because, you know, you don't have to keep re-explaining to them over and over from panel to panel Hey, it has to look the same. Hey, it has to be consistent. And even when the technology catches up so that it doesn't take all that much impression, the other thing that's important to remember here is that even with the AI, you have to be able to clearly explain exactly what you want all the way down to the specifics. 
And when you're working on like a comic book or with an artist on any commission, there's always a certain amount of creative freedom that you can give them and just say like, here's the general feeling I'm going for. Here's some inspiration. Here's some mood board type stuff. And then they can kind of organically come up with something and you work on that together with the AI version. It all has to be like come a hundred percent from you. So you have to understand all versions of color theory and anatomy and perspective and like all of these different phrasings and, and terminology that, that spans multiple disciplines. And that's not something that every single person is going to be able to just pick up on. And even if you could, that makes you even better working with artists in the future, because if you can explain to a dumb computer, like with precise definition of exactly what you want a visual to look like, if you give that to a human artist, now all of a sudden, like you've given them way more than they need and they can knock that out of the park, but it would still take you being able to clearly communicate the things that you want. And I think a vast majority of people that turn to AI for convenience or speed, they don't necessarily know exactly what they want with such clarity that they can just turn a key and get what they want. So it's like you're giving up that control and just saying, hey, I kind of want this thing that looks kind of like this. Just give me the best version and you pick it. But if you want to make like a long lasting story that's got multiple characters and they interact with each other and it spans for a year, it kind of takes a lot of the AI out of the running, at least for now. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's like where people are panicking, obviously, is they're like, well, if you could just use, you know, what, how do we know what's real or not? But clearly there's some nuance and to, some skill to these technologies. And clearly, as you said, this is not a new, you know, clash. I mean, this is just a byproduct of progress in this sort of artistic technology, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're looking at here is, you know, with computers and all of this stuff, we're seeing a, a whole new reality being created and we have to be comfortable with these two realities merging and, and manage our relationship with it because you know we're not in control these corporations are in control at least on this level right i mean i don't I, as far as well, i it know it doesn't even matter if you're comfortable because like i'm like the touring test is long gone mm. so you're probably even the most anti-ai luddite out there is probably going to consume some form of media and not realize right. that it was ai produced and it, and like and then what do you do? You find out ten years later that your favorite album or your favorite movie was heavily AI produced. Do you just stop liking it immediately? Is it like finding out Roman Polanski was like you know a horrible person? So now like every movie I've ever seen, I'm gonna forget it. And now my favorite movies are no longer my favorite movies. Or um, it's just, it's a it's a weird position that I don't think has ever happened before. Because even when computer assisted drawing came out there were some people that were like oh you're cheating because you're using a wacom or you're using like digital graphics but you could almost tell you could say like oh this looks digital or whatever but now we're in this space where you don't know unless someone tells you right so uh, it's a that's a weird version of artwork where it's like oh yeah i didn't actually paint that a computer painted that but if i didn't tell you that you never would have known well and and to your point earlier, I mean, using a pad to draw something takes just as much artistic skill in some sense, you know, or even, you know, with a mouse, like, God forbid, you, you're like, I'm totally challenged when it comes to using my mouse for anything but clicking. I mean, to have the skill, maybe it requires like a, a good mouse. I, I have a cheap 
mouse. If I spent a hundred dollars on a computer mouse, maybe it'd be better. But uh, but you get what I'm I'm getting at here. Like it does take skill to operate these programs that people have been creating art with. I remember when I was a kid, there was this like DVD computer ROM game that my mom bought me that was like create your own comic book, and it was so <laughs> crappy. I mean, it was so hard to figure out how this program worked. But that's what they were getting at was like, oh, you know, we can use digital programs to do this. So let's sell it to consumers as a game, you know, or whatever, like something that for people who are interested in. Well, AI will definitely break that mold because now you can have someone that understands all of those terms and then just make something that like magically spits out right. like the, the crafted version. So you go in there, you just type in Bigfoot, but really what it's doing, and this is kind of how mid journey works where you might just put in picture of Bigfoot, but behind the scenes, they're adding a whole bunch of stuff. That's like, you know, masterful painting of Bigfoot that, that has no JPEG artifact compression. And it's got dramatic lighting and ambient occlusion and ray tracing. And like, they kind of sprinkle in, not, they don't verbatim, like add those keywords, but when you request the picture, it's going through a model that's already filtered out all of the bad looking crap mm. that would normally take you, you know, maybe years of figuring out how the technology works and how to talk to it. It just does it for you. So like now you go to the store in that same analogy and you buy the comic making program. Well, now you really just be like, I want a comic about a guy that has, you know, that can fly and he's got a blue suit and like the software can turn all those into prompts for you and like generate it all. So now you don't even have to draw anything. You just put blue suit guy can fly right. and then the whole comic books there. But again, it's like, is that your story? Is that so personal that you were just able to work through like some deep, you know, some deep issue that you're trying to work through as a human that's not going to come out now because you just typed in blue and hit the big generate button. Mm -hmm. So to get back to that aspect where you're going to work through something that you're personally going through, or that character is going to have some kind of visual cues that remind you of, you know, the bully that beat you up when you were younger, plus like your dead uncle's, you know, scar and like all of those things that make it personal AI doesn't just automatically inject all that stuff. So, right. I mean, there's, you, you'll notice a lack of soul, I think, but again, it, only if you care enough to look a, a seven-year-old looking at the pretty pictures in a comic probably will never care that it was missing that soul. But if you go back and read it later and you're like, oh, wow, this has absolutely no substance to it. It's just AI generated words. I think that's where the difference might come in. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope people, you know, find value in that as we move forward. But if there's anybody to help us understand what's going on in the realm of AI, particularly AI generated art, it's you, brother. I mean, you're on the leading edge of it. I'm sure dozens of podcasts are talking about the whole, you know, Joe Rogan thing. I heard Sam and Johnny talking about it on Broken Sim where, you know, AI re created a episode of the Joe Rogan podcast where Joe Rogan interviews Donald Trump. And, you know, I, I mean, that's totally And this is like bait. four or five years old at this point. Oh, they were wow. doing that such a long time ago, the voice AI. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard similar stories. But yeah, I guess, I guess now they're walking this out into the mainstream media to like show everybody like, oh, look how good it is. Like, and I wonder if that's because they realize how this subculture is informing people 
people in a new way. And maybe they're trying to delegitimize it by saying like, oh, how do you even know that's a real conversation you're listening to? Because now they're just AI generating it to your point. Like people don't know the difference between these nuances within the art community. How are they going to know if they're just listening to a podcast for the first time? They're not a diehard podcast listener like me or something. They might not know that they're listening to, you know, some kind of how much does that matter? I, I want, I mean, open ended question, but how wow. much does it matter if you listened to an entirely artificial Joe Rogan interview for two hours and he was interviewing a person and those people never actually made any of those claims and they never actually met and never talked in life. But if you took something away from it and found it engaging and entertaining, like, does it make it any, like it was less real and reality wise, but was it any less of a real piece of media that you took something away from? I don't know. Mm. It's, it's a, it's an interesting world that I think we're steering into with that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, as somebody who enjoys learning, I'm like, well, of course there's no value in something that is being conducted by AI, like as far as a conversation goes, but who knows, maybe that'll change. AI is just a mirror. AI is just taking everything it's learned from humans and showing it back to us. So, I mean, I think in that regard, there's, there's a little bit of value to it, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think we... We didn't get to get into Rene Descartes or anything. That's we were, fine. We were going to start, but honestly, the, the Descartes thing is where I keep going back to with this AI because so much I've got so much respect for this this sort of mind blowing concept of Rene Descartes said I don't even trust my own eyeballs because he kind of realized that all your vision was was just your your optical nerve just vibrating. So if someone came up and punched you in the back of the head and you see a big white flash, it was just all of the optic nerves just kind of like smashing against, you know, the inside of your head and all triggering at one time, causing this sensation of vision. So based on that sort of conclusion, he was like, well, I guess I can't really trust anything my eyes see because all it means is that something vibrated my optic nerve. It doesn't mean that the thing was actually there in front of me. Wow. So I think if you take that to its most extreme, it's like Rene Descartes wouldn't be bothered by, by AI because he already thinks everything in physical reality is a lie. So like AI wouldn't be any more of a lie. It's just doing the same thing as anyone else. It's just vibrating your optic nerves and trying to represent something that's not actually there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to your point, we didn't talk much about Descartes, but that's fine because you and Juan and and Gabe had a, a fantastic conversation about it that I was listening to earlier today. So folks can go over to uh, the one-on-one podcast to check that out. You're always on Juan's show. There's been probably dozens of interviews between you and him or, or just shows. Well, we've got the guys... Occult Book Club podcast. Right. So if you go to occultbookclub.com. Was that under the, the Occult playlist. Book Club umbrella or? It was. It was a follow-up to a book that we read called The Cartesian Voyage from right. like the late 1600s. Okay. Where a guy talks about all of the, again, from the, the 1600s, he's talking about all of this, right. which blows my mind man because again it's like such forward thinking and and to say in the 16 like right now in 2023 to see ai and be like oh you can't trust anything your eyes see but imagine being in the 1600s and telling people Mm. hey you can't trust what your eyes see Mm. because it's just the representation of like an abstract reality they'd be like yo burn this dude at the stake what's this guy talking about (laughs) yeah wow great point yeah and i think we ought to have you both back on to get 
into that more. I love the Occult Book Club show. I'm well aware of it. Uh, I think I even in in some way inspired it, but I, I don't want to take credit. Or at least the, the credit. book review, yeah. <laughs> but either way, I'm glad somebody pulled that show off because it is it's something that I I think needs to be going on. I might I might take a whack at joining you guys on a future episode. I have enough books to to furnish a bunch of episodes. But either way. That's not all you're doing lately. You got your your new YouTube channel. You've had it for a while, but you know you're putting new content on it. So tell us, tell the folks where they can go. Obviously, paranoidamerican.com is where they find all your work, your art, the comics you're putting together. But you're going to be doing more shows like this, and they can go to your YouTube channel, right? That's right. It's it's Paranoid American on YouTube right now. Cool. You can see a few different live streams I've done. I've uploaded a few original entirely ai produced music videos it's under this a band name called the masonic space cadets which is really just ai <laughs> i also did a video for joel thomas right, of Mockingbird yeah. podcast i did the music video for his song called eat which was just him taking a picture in the bathroom with his iphone and then from that one picture that he sent me everything else you see was completely animated using a whole host of different tools wow you can see me on at paranoid american on instagram which is where i post a lot of my ai generated artworks and videos and just like weird little experiments that might not fit exactly as like a comic book or coloring book area but it fits perfectly in instagram mm. and i've also started training i man I, I noticed that so many of the ai models are on like like, you know, sexy celebrities, like they've got, you know, the Charlize Theron's and, and, you know, Oh um, yeah. That's you know, like a Jenny huge Ortega's market. and stuff. Yeah, knock off and then there's <laughs> lots of hentai and like anime stuff. And yeah. I was sitting back and it's like, AI doesn't know who Jeffrey Epstein is. I'm going to make that my mission. I'm going to train AI to know who Jeffrey Epstein is Lane Maxwell, the Podesta's, you know, just like political figures. So I've made that my, my mission lately too. So on, oh. on at Paranoid American on Instagram, you can see a whole bunch of models I've been training. That's awesome. Um, you should get in touch with old Elon. I heard he wanted to do something similar. Didn't he say he wanted to, maybe it wasn't him or someone else. They said they wanted to make an honest chat GPT that wasn't like, you know, social media or social, social justice. So you warrior. can, you can run one right now. There's an open source version called llama, although mm. it takes a lot of technical understanding and a decent hardware. I think you have to have like a 16 gig card or higher, but you can essentially run chat GPT on your own computer off the cloud and ask it anything you want. And it is completely unfiltered, unbridled, wow. uh, which is actually a little bit scary because you realize you can say things like, how do I make an explosive? Explain it to me like I'm five. And it'll be like, great, you know, open up your pantry here. Here's a 10 step process on how to blow up your house. So wow. like you can absolutely get those kind of things out of it. But you can also say, you know, write me like an incredibly gruesome and violent fanfic about, you know, some topic. And you'll never hear it come back and say, I'm sorry, you know, due to ethical concerns, I can't provide that information that just doesn't exist in the vocabulary right. anymore. And honestly, that's going to be when the cat comes out of the bag. So a lot of people see AI generated artwork and audio and they think like, oh man, this must be like the, the top of sort of technological evolution. It's not generating convincing sounding text 
is orders of magnitude more difficult than fooling your eyeballs. And again, going back to Descartes, it's like making an image or a video that tricks your eyes is it's child's play. It's going to be so easy that an eight-year-old on an iPad can make something that's going to trick everyone if they didn't know it was AI created, but to have AI write something that, you know, has consistency and makes good points and doesn't repeat itself. That is just such an incredibly hard task to do. But I think that's going to be when people should start getting scared is when like uh, one of the examples I give all those stories of like the old lady that drives her car into the lake because the GPS told her to like, just keep driving straight. And it's like, even though your eyeballs are like, there's a lake right there, but the computer it's like, well, the computer's always right, so let's just keep driving. And that's a that's a silly example, but now imagine that your car isn't just a GPS saying drive straight, but it's like a chat GPT bot that's making a very strong argument about why you need to keep driving straight. It's not just drive straight, it's like you know, yeah. making all these these compelling reasons why it's right and you're wrong. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of people that don't stand a chance against that. If you were going to drive your car into a lake because the GPS just said drive straight, what chance do you have when when Chad GPT is like, and here's a paragraph mm. that makes a convincing argument? Right, right. And I, I've been in situations as an Amazon driver where the GPS is like, yeah, go down this road. And I get down <laughs> the road and it's literally like a swamp and a forest combined. Like the road turns into grass and it's just like a swamp. And I'm like, wow, where is this package supposed to go? If, like, am I delivering to a troll right now? Like, is he li- living <laughs> under a bridge somewhere in this swamp? But, geez, anyways, we have gone down quite the, the rabbit hole from comics to AI. I know it's not a usual topic for this show, but it's something that I've recently just got ingratiated in, and who better to talk about it with than you, my brother? So I know Wants told me how pricey it is to put these comics together, and I would love to see some more support for this Illuminati confirmed comic that we, if you could pull that one back up for a second. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's even available. Tell me the chosen one series, but if you can get it folks, go and buy this. Cause how often do you get to see one of your favorite podcasters in a full color comic book? I mean, look at that. One of my powers in my comic book here at one and Thomas put together with the help of some awesome artists. I, I could spontaneously form crystals out of my body. And one of those crystals has like some, I don't know, telekinesis, like Gambit or something. Maybe it has a laser power. It was, it was definitely inspired by Gambit. Yeah. Much so. Oh, well, I mean, of course. And then I, yeah, lighting the blunt there on that other page <laughs> with the light crystal. Light a blunt with the energy that comes directly out of your hand, yeah. yeah I wonder what hero inspired Juan's character, because I do think that's like very Wonder Twins of him to have like <laughs> an alter ego kind of power. That's cool. I love it. There's actually a character from, I want to say X Factor that has a, a similar ability to that where he can split himself into as many. Oh, yeah, as yeah, he wants. yeah, yeah. What's that guy's name? He has like kind of a 
I want to say it's like Mister Multiplicity or something, but yeah, I, multiple I might man. just be making that up. Multiple the, man. Yeah, it's it's one of because Marvel like they have even like strong guy like some of the names for their X Men like they just <laughs> ran out of ideas like strong guy, multiple man, even Power man, yeah. even Morph <laughs> is kind of like you know like some of these names. I, I actually Bonebreaker was a character that I got familiar with recently because of the the build a figure action figures, and I'm like, who the hell cares about this character enough to get an action figure of him you know it's just like such a odd like out of like who cared about toad enough to make him top billing in the right. first x-men movie well, someone yes yeah, geez yeah toad is interesting i definitely think there's a story there but anyways we could talk comics all day i want to have you back on so folks listening get in touch tell me if you liked us talking about this stuff we'll do it again get into some more obscure comics and weird subjects like this we really only scratched the surface and and yeah maybe we'll have you and Juan back on to talk about Descartes and Gabe of course too you know get into all that but folks follow Paranoid American in all the places support his new YouTube channel all the new content that's going to be coming out there check out the the all the great stuff that you can collect put on your shelf have something tangible to show your friends it's not just something that you do in secret listening to podcasts you know on your phone or wherever have something to show for it you know that's what i love about what you do man it's like now i'm in a comic book this is a tangible thing when i get my hands on i'm gonna bring it to my family's house you know for like thanksgiving or whatever and be like do you guys think i'm crazy now (laughs) but anyways (laughs) that's enough for this episode thank you for tuning in folks and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to go to The Hit Kit on Instagram. Check out The Hit Kit. Just type in The Hit Kit. Check them out. We got some really cool stuff sponsoring this show. Dozens of ways to keep your stash safe from the dank bank to the Swiss kit. You could lock it up. You could swap it in, pop it in, pop it out, open it up, flick it, click it, bick it with your lighter right there. It's the number one way to get lit with the hit kit. So pick up a hit kit right now. Use that promo code CRAZY, C-R-A-Z-Y, capital letters, and get 20% off. Pick up a hit kit. Give your friends a belated 420 gift. Say, hey, hey. I'm such a stoner, I forgot 420 was last month, but here's a gift for you. Maybe you owe your old pot dealer a couple, you know, maybe 15, 20 bucks, you know, he fronted you, you gotta, you know, get back on his good side, throw him a hit kit. You never know how you could brighten somebody's day. But anyways, check out our guest today, Thomas from Paranoid American. Just go and check it out. Paranoid American. You just search that. And he's got a YouTube channel now where he's been posting some stuff. Hopefully Thomas starts his own podcast. It sounds like he's going to be doing some sort of YouTube show. But if you didn't know already and you like comic books, Thomas publishes a bunch of really 
excellent comic books, including the Chosen One series, which stars yours truly. Still haven't gotten a copy of it yet, but when I do, I'm going to talk about it. So stay tuned for that. Maybe you can go and buy it. I think it's available at Paranoid Americans website. So go and check that out. Anyways, not much to say other than a big thank you to our new Patreons. We got a couple new Patreons. Somebody who just signed up only a few moments ago, synchronistically, right before I was about to do this, I noticed that we have a new patron. I want to give them a shout out <clears throat> as well as, excuse me, some new patrons that signed up this week. If only the Patreon app would work. All right, Daniel. Nope, nope. We're going to try that again. So Mark Miller, shout out to Mark. Shout out to Danielle. Shout out to Donald. And shout out to Sultan. Although I think I gave Sultan a shout out last time. But anyways, thank you for signing up. Uh, we were at past 150 patrons. Now we're back down to 144. So just go ahead now that we're in a new month, go and make sure that you are still signed up. If you are a Patreon supporter and you're signed up for the Patreon, just double check. Make sure that you're still signed up. I don't know what it is about Patreon, but every month we lose a couple of supporters and it doesn't seem to be, you know, <clears throat> it doesn't seem to be intentional because normally when somebody leaves the patreon they have the option of either giving feedback or not and then i get a message about that but every month i don't get those messages yet we lose some subscribers uh during the payment processing period so i don't know what that has to do maybe that has to do with the payment processing whatever uh, either way support the show sign up on patreon if you sign up for the eight dollar tier I'll sign you up directly to our Substack as well. So you get two for the price of one. Um, and of course, if you prefer Substack, you can support us there. We also have a Rockfin where you can check out the video side of things. If you've never heard of Rockfin, it's a really cool website where you get a bunch of great channels like mine for just one monthly fee. So you get to watch the podcast instead of just listening to it. And I do upload older episodes of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to YouTube along with the other podcast that I do called Esoteric America. We just recorded a fantastic episode about Mount Shasta with a gentleman named Lowell Johnson. So stay tuned for that and go and check that out on YouTube. That'll be coming out this week. And uh, yeah, big shout out to Thomas for joining me, indulging on my new uh, comic book interest I don't know this is something that I wasn't going to talk much about on the show but I have really uh, gotten back into collecting action figures after finding some old ones in my father's uh, house when I was going and digging through some of my old stuff so who knows if you have uh, Marvel Legends action figures and you want to send them to me to support the show that's welcome you can do that now uh, actually, shout out to some listeners who've sent me a number of really cool things over the past few months. Uh, one thing that's right next to me, Al Dog sent me a book 
called the Charter. And, uh, right, that's what it's called. I think there's another word, too. Hold on. The book is titled The Charter, A Millennial Journey Out of Hip Hop Hypnosis. So we're going to be having him on the show soon to talk about that. He sent me his book. I've had people send me gemstones. I've had people send me comic books, actually. Not just Thomas, but uh, another gentleman who sent me some really cool comic books uh, that are not in front of me right now. One of them called Void Trip. The other one called Hive Mind. And, uh, yeah, hold on. Yeah, so Plaid Claws. Shout out to Plaid Claws. He sent me a comic book. So, yeah, gotten back into collecting comic books. Got some Wolverine. Got some X-Men. Got some... Today, let's see, what did I get today? Did I get anything? Yeah, I got some Wolverine today. Uh, Nick Fury. I like Nick Fury. I don't know. I'm a little into Mar- Marvel, particularly, but I like all sorts of stuff. I like... Uh, older stuff weird stuff uh there's a comic i found called nom about vietnam soldiers that's interesting so yeah if you're into that kind of stuff join the telegram hit me up send me pictures of your comic books your action figures if you're into that kind of thing if not who cares not a big deal this topic is not gonna take up that much airtime on the show but it is something that I'm interested in and uh, yeah, figured I'd open up and fill you guys in on something that I do because uh, I don't just sit around and read books about conspiracies all the time, all day. I do that occasionally and when I have guests that I'm interviewing, but for the most part, I like to think I'm just a <laughs> normal uh, dork out there. Uh, in the ether creating a podcast that people for whatever reason really like so if you like the show support the show share it with your friends leave us a five-star rating and review send us a one-time donation send me some action figures whatever you want to do uh marvel only by the way or gi joe they're cool too but uh but yeah that's it folks thank you so much for being here and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Peace. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused. Like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals Dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war The Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes Of a copy of a human body DNA fractal The universe within me Epiphanies of science Is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know The power of the mantra Repeating mad lies Till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages Hijack your perception Tricking the population With holographic projections We see through it, the system is unraveling, I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey, I embark with the squad, forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod, gotta know the facts, never hold back, cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap, I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out, 
depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian bases. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway. I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out. Rob him for his plasma gun. Hop in the ship. Take the controls. They highly intuitive. I figure it out easily. Lift off. Accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light. Fly into the sky. Get flanked. By six F-35 Gotta know facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.